I'm sorry. The old Brian can't come to the phone right now. Why? Oh. Because he's dead. That was the dumbest fucking thing I've ever done in my entire life. Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. I am your host, Matt Freeman, and my path to victory has led me to create this podcast. And this is my horrible creations, the Scott in a Ball. Scott. I am in control of my mind and my feelings, and I am focused. I am confident, and I am building towards a better future for myself. Every success is a component in building that up a brick on a building in construction. But my mistakes do not tear it down. They are part of me, but they are not the most important part of me. And this is the podcast for you, a worm expert guide me, a first-time reader through Wild Bill's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. Matt, this week, we talk about Worms, the end of Worms' penultimate arc, arc 29, Chapters 29.6 through 29.fortuna. <laughs> yeah. um, this is it, Matt. This is it. We're like, these are the last steps we need to take until we get to our climax. We're, 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 we're rising the shit out of that action. And, uh, and we're here, we're here at the, the, the last moments before we get into our final battle. Yep. Everything is, is very nicely lined up, um, in terms of a whole bunch of characters, a whole bunch of thematic threads, um, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I have a good feeling about this, Scott. I feel like, I feel like it's going to go well. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's, nothing's going to go wrong. But of course we know, you and I know with story structure, the, the moment that leads to the climax is the, the main character, the protagonist having to make one final choice to make one final decision to really seal the person they're going to be at the end of this thing. And that's what we get here. This, this arc ends on Taylor's, uh, last choice if you will before we get into this com- this uh, this climax and and we're going to talk all about this but it kind of perfectly encapsulates every everything that all one and a half million words have been leading to yeah yeah and it's perfect that we're contrasted with the interlude character that we are contrasted with that, that being that being contessa who, who who we come to understand a bit and and con- can't help but contrast and compare against Taylor and the choices she's making so yeah completely agree absolutely well let's let's do it i'm excited i'm excited all right quick announcements we have a winner for the second quarterly uh we've got worm fan art contest with over half of the vote lawn sheep's wonderful artwork titled ball pit has won our second quarterly art contest so congrats lawn sheep yay um yeah we'll be creating a post on the website to show all of the artwork for you guys uh, so look for the link uh, to that in the show notes. The submissions this time were amazing. Everybody everybody should look at all, all of them. 
Um, yeah. So nice job to all of, of these talented artists. Yeah, I, I, we try not to vote in this contest. We leave the vote up to y'all. Um, but I was floored with with what we got. It was some really beautiful artwork, some really creative ideas. It's like exactly what I wanted when I, I, I thought of of this particular uh, prompt. So thanks. Thanks, artists, for doing that. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, very, very creative. Lawn Sheeps was just not anything I would have ever thought of in a million years, but <laughs> no. it was extremely delightful. Yeah, the detail in it. Oh, I feel like yeah. we're just hoarding it over the people that haven't seen it yet at this point. So go click on the link right now and look at it. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, uh, some quick comments and questions from the subreddit this last week. So uh, Revlas commented that we tend to use Rachel and Taylor uh, the, the name's Rachel and Taylor, but we always use Tattletale in, instead of Lisa. And uh, and actually, I, I to, to editorialize for a moment, I, I tend to go out of my way as much as possible to say Skitter when she's being Skitter, Taylor when she's being Taylor, Weaver when she's being Weaver, and, and so on, um, in, in terms of like not my discussing them and doing my summary for the for the um, chapters. Um, so, so yes, yeah, Shadow Monk goes on and, and points out uh, does a little bit of data mining and points out that um, there's there's a bit of a correlation here in, in the story in terms of arcs 27 and 28. Uh, Rachel is used 121 times. Bitch is only used 13 times. Taylor is used 23 times. Skitter nine times. And Weaver 18 times. So I, I like that right off the bat because it shows that, first of all, Taylor is thinking of Rachel as as Rachel almost exclusively. Yeah. And And, and furthermore, that... Taylor is being Taylor here, but actually her, her allies, her hero allies are calling her Weaver and her villain allies are calling her Skitter, which is something I think we're going to touch on later. Yeah, um, absolutely. But to add to all this, for Tattletale, the, the, the name Tattletale is used 359 times and the word Lisa is used once. Um, and I think that's kind of awesome because it's showing that Tattletale really is being Tattletale here. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it goes, and I think uh, Shadow Monk went into this in his post a little bit too, and I completely agree with him, this idea that like even even when Lisa's Tattletale mask is cracked and coming off, we don't we don't really even see Taylor shift and start to call her that. Um, I, think, I think he specifically says the only time Lisa is used, the only time Lisa is used is when like it's appended to Tattletale. Like she says Tattletale and then switches to Lisa in that moment as if, as if she's maybe finally realizing, um, I need to treat her as the human, the person under that mask, the person under that identity. And then right after that, she goes right back to calling her Tattletale again. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we don't really have this in our, in our daily lives, but like if you had an, if you had an alias that you went by all the time and you were called only that, that you would sort of adhere to that identity, I think. Right. And if somebody called you your normal name, it would feel shocking. Um, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and we've we've talked so many times throughout this this project about the importance of names and which names you identify with. The text has made it explicit how important that is through different character interactions. So these things do matter, and and I think you're right that we've tried to reflect the the names we use based on um, the reflection of how they're used in the story. And I was kind of happy to see that that is true, that, that we use the word tattletale more than we use Lisa. And so does the story. Yeah, that's right. All right, Scott, let's get into the latter half of arc 29 venom. Yes. I can't wait. So we open things up and we have Taylor and her crew of her hero and villain allies are, are deep in the cauldron base and they've just stumbled across uh, satirical in his group of Vegas capes. And we have Cuff saying, you're doing that crazy mastermind thing again. 
witch crazy mastermind thing where you talk to the other masterminds and one of you leaves something unsaid and the other knows what that thing is without asking who's here. Yeah. I love this because we pick up like, you know, a lot of times like there's always when you, when you jump, um, I, I guess, I guess this is a little different. I, I almost went into my thing of sometimes you move arc to arc and you, you've had a time jump between, but then I remembered that, no, we're not actually in a different arc. This is still 29. Um, but we, yeah, we pick up right, right where we left off and, and we have this wonderful line by Cuff that I just like, this is one of probably my favorite lines in the book now because it's so, it's so Taylor. <laughs> like we've seen her do this multiple times in the past, but it makes me wonder, she had this whole life with Cuff for two years. How many times did Cuff have to observe her do this as part of the Chicago Awards? Yeah, right. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty funny because yeah, it's, it's, it hints at a past between them, which yeah, is yeah. completely true. Yeah. And of course the answer to Cuff's question is is what what we what everyone thought last week that Sion Sion is here. Yeah. So and Saturn knows this. Uh so he explains to Taylor that Sion followed them uh through the through the portal to the cauldron base. Um and that this is bad news because pretty much all of Cauldron's contingency plans relied on this facility. It's it's pretty interesting that the most powerful and all knowing organization on the planet didn't have a contingency for hey, what if the interdimensional all knowing Godman finds our base. Um, yeah. Of course, this is one of those things that you say now, but then you realize as you go through the rest of the arc that it makes sense. Exactly. Like their plans, there was a contingency for that and, and everything they did had a plan behind it. And, but also you understand why they couldn't predict for those certain things, because there are some built in limitations to this planning they're able to do. Like everything comes together in a really satisfactory way. Yeah, there's also the wonderful irony of the fact that all of their plans were ruined by their very creations, very very Frankenstein thing. Right. It's, it's the, the case of T3s that they let out into the world and didn't really think about the human cost of what they were doing. It, it was the, the hatred that they created there that, that was their own undoing in the end. Absolutely, and we see that. Uh, that that thread literally picked up in this one where, where the, the death of, of Dr. Mother is... At, literally at the hands of one of her creations it's, it's yep. very it's very poetic both in the abstract and in the specific yeah couldn't be more perfect there yeah um so satter tells them the plan was to wait for the group on the other side of the facility to forge their way through the steel or around the steel but someone gave the custodian a tinker made super death knife and well that was me i said nothing to do with the custodian <laughs> my bad <laughs> them this this is this is one of those moments where i think you 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 do realize specifically that that maybe an a moment of inaction on taylor's behalf could have arguably been better than action and i don't think i say that to firmly declare that that taylor was absolutely unequivocally wrong in the thing she did the last chapter i just say that to say that the situation is a lot more complicated and 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 once again, we're seeing her propensity to act first and deal with the consequences later, even if she doesn't fully understand what those consequences are and the full scope of things happening around her. Um, and 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 now now things are harder. Now getting down to Doctor Mother is going to take more time, which is the one thing they don't have. Yeah, and she she doesn't really understand what the motives of the Vegas Capes are, and I'm not sure if, if I even do either, actually, which is makes it even more tense um, from our point of view as the right. readers and, and vicariously through Taylor that we don't, we know that we don't trust the case 53s. We don't really trust the cauldron guys who we're about to run into. And we 
also don't trust the Vegas capes who should be on her side. So it, yeah, it's all very, it's it, right. It, in, increasing the tension that we had from the last uh, half of the arc actually. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the way it increases that is exactly through the fact that we don't have a full grasp on even what, like not only what they want, but why they would want it. Like Taylor cannot understand what, what their goal is here. And so she can't get a read on them and that, it, and then of course by, by default, neither can we. So we're kind of in this space of what is, what is going on here? And you're right. That absolutely builds the tension here. Yeah. So here we learn a little bit about Leonid and Florit and later a little bit about blowout. The three other Vegas capes who were there, Leonid can hear everything nearby and he has claws on his fingers uh, Florit perceives details. That's uh, that's her power, and she can cr- also create special m- multi-purpose buds of, of crystal that can do uh, a wide variety of things. And Blowout has a telekinesis-based strength power that makes him stronger the more impressed people are with him. Yeah, and I love how this fits thematically with with not only Vegas itself, but with what their role was and how they how they ha- manage the city. It's very fitting, and it's it's again. Some new and interesting ideas. A blowout's power in particular is really fascinating. <laughs> the idea that yeah. it's better the more people are are awed by it. Yeah. I also like the moment where Taylor thinks about how um, they, they their quote-unquote secondary powers tend to be their hidden edge and their, their ostentatious primary power is almost a smokescreen for their second power. Right. And I mean, that's something we've been talking about since the very beginning of the book, right? That That your ability to control what people do and don't know about you and your powers is, is a great skill in this world. And none more true is that than with these Vegas capes. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about that with Taylor where, where people forget very often that her sensory power is is extremely, extremely versatile and lets her do a lot of things that just control, uh, doesn't, doesn't really cover. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as they make their way collectively toward the group of deviants who are aiming to melt their way through through the steel toward the doctor in the panic room, Satter tells them that Revel, Exalt, and Vantage were all hidden in the cave where the team made insertion, and they'd, they'd all been knocked out by blowout. Taylor worries the blowout may have blown up their brains. Yeah, and I think this does a couple things for us here. I think it's it's helping work towards building that tension we've been talking about. Uh, we make it clear that, that there are powers involved here that that taylor and her team don't know enough about to know exactly the full extent of them and that some of these powers may actually have like permanent brain damage effects but again i also can't help but see the fact that that taylor and her team left behind other heroes in their rush in their rush to push forward and move forward they left people behind unknowingly as again her propensity to charge blindly into conflict without stopping to consider everything and and if I had to guess, I'd say we're we're putting in the work right now to set up Taylor making a angry, uh, venomous, eh, eh, uh, yeah, rash yeah. decision here at the end of this arc. And it seems like that's what we're doing here. Yeah, making some hasty decisions. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So so speaking of that, just reminded me for a second. Like, do, do, do you? I, I think venom. The closest thing I can come to with venom for this chapter would be the the the, the liquid, the vials, the um. Um, there's also, there's also the aspect of like the poisoning, the, 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 um, the corrupting in some sense of the K-63s that was done by the, by this venom that they consumed. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's like any, any 
name he used. There's tons of them. I mean, the, the, yeah. that's the literal, the, the, the venom of their anger. Um, Sion gets very upset <laughs> in this, in this arc. Uh, yeah. Taylor herself gets very upset in this arc. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and then you can think back to, to the Contessa chapter here in a bit and how everything around there was poisonous, like in the spot where, where Fuckster landed, um, everything yeah. was poisonous and, yeah. and turning people yeah. monstrous, just drinking and eating the food and all that stuff. So it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So, so this, this scene, you know, that we're spending time on right now where they're, they're walking through the halls with the Vegas capes, it's, it's really very tense and, and enjoyable. Um, they're, they're all kind of aligned with these guys in terms of goals, um, get to the doctor, ask her some questions, but Taylor is still absolutely expecting a backstab from the other group. And she's basically planning her own backstab in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. She's like slowly, uh, transporting her, her death knife to herself unbeknownst to anyone else. And, and you're absolutely right that, that both sides are just kind of watch each other and, and they're almost perfectly suited to, to ferret out everything the other one is doing either with superheroing or, or attention to detail or Taylor's just ability to notice things. Um, everyone is good at, uh, like detecting each other and nobody's making a move because they know they can't and you're just kind of waiting for things to happen. And of course they eventually do, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Right. So I like it when Rachel speaks up. I don't like him. Rachel murmured in my ear. Imp leaned in to join the conversation, adding, you do know that Leonid can hear everything that's said in a certain area around him. There's no point in whispering as if she hadn't just found that out for herself. I don't like him. Rachel said full volume. Um, and I thought that's cool just because it, it, you know, it's funny for one thing. Um, but it, it, the following scene where Satter can't like get the edge over Rachel is cool because even a well-practiced con man wouldn't necessarily be able to pull anything over on Rachel based on how she is. On the contrary, she's seeing through his facade and reading what what's really going on with him under the surface. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right here. And I think over and over again, we've seen that. Uh, while Rachel's inability to understand human behavior tends to be a detriment, it also offers her this unique perception on thing. She, she can't understand intentional, refined human emotion, but she can detect our instinctual, um, animalistic reactions to things the the natural ingrained responses that we try to hide from people, but often can't. And, and, and as you said, it makes her perfectly suited to both resist satyr's charms as well as be able to detect and ferret out the true meaning behind the way he's he's behaving um and it's it's really good because it shows once again how useful and smart and capable rachel is um if i had one complaint about this uh it would be that i don't think this pays off directly in this scene in any kind of real way um like taylor is already pretty suspicious of them and we already kind of know that they're a moment away from attacking just through Taylor's suspicion. So Rachel's insight doesn't really clue us or Taylor into anything that, that we didn't already know here. Like I love, I love it as a character beat for Rachel, but it doesn't do much in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see where you're coming from. It, I guess it, it adds to this element where they're, everyone here is so hostile to each other that it really doesn't take much to set them off. Yeah. And yeah. Th this would be one drop in that bucket. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's really just, you know, 
mainly characterization, I would say. It is, yeah, and, you're, and you're right. Less of an auxiliary, auxiliary plot function. than. And, uh, and it has yeah. paid off in the past, and I reserve the right to see it pay off in another way in the future. But <laughs> I just, like, in, in this moment, uh, I just was hoping, like, maybe she would detect something that no one else had or something. Yeah. But and that didn't really that didn't really happen. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Taylor wonders why Scion is taking his time coming down through the facility, and uh, Satter monologues that he thinks it's because of the abundance of K fifty threes in the facility. Scion doesn't quite know what to make of them at this point. Um, th- so they're talking about this idea of the K fifty threes being like his his corrupted spawn, and Shadow Soccer chimes in. Something foul, Shadow Stalker spoke for the first time since we'd been split up to escape the cell. Broken, wrong, loathsome, damaged, and no parent wants to face the fact that their kids came out less than perfect. The sphere imp had tucked under one shoulder, jerked a little. Yeah, this is this is a really interesting beat here. I think I think we we kind of ex- expand upon this further later in the chapter and, and the arc itself that um, that case fifty three is not only were created as a way to test, but these deviants were specifically created as a way to fuck with Scion on a mental level to distract him and confuse him and, and, and kind of provide them with a smoke screen against him. And, and I think that's interesting because it, it goes down to the human element again, that, that Cauldron is so divorced from the humanity of their actions that, that they're basically creating like human shields in these monsters. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're so not even people to them anymore that they, they just exist only as their purpose. And it's it, their purpose here is just merely to exist and confuse the guy, not to do anything more specific than that. Just stand in the area we need you to stand in. Yeah. Right. And, so, and the, the part I love at the end though, is with, with the sphere moving a little, like, we're going to have some really emotional moments with poor Sveta here for the rest of this, this arc. And this is the kind of the beginning of it. We see she heard everything that they just said and, and it really, really hurt her and it breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. That's that part is, is very, very important. And I want to spend definitely due time on that when we get there. Yeah, absolutely. Which is going to happen pretty soon. Yep. So, so they partially open Sveta's ball to find out more about what happened um, because she was there for all the infiltration events. And they learned that the Doctor and Number Man and the Harbingers, uh, n- new band name, um, and, and Alex Tender are um, are down in, in the panic room, and, and they're all together, and Contessa isn't with them. Yeah, I, I support um, your band name. However, I have to insist that we call the Pretender-Alex combo uh, Foesandria. Okay. Actually, now that I say it out loud... <laughs> Looks better written than it does say out loud, but it's too late. We've gone, we've gone too far. Yeah. Speaking of things that look better written down, it, it was it was Numsy and the Harbingers was what I wrote down, and then I was like, that doesn't actually sound right. So anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So the the lights, uh, just something to point out is that like the the lights have been creepily flickering and going out and going into emergency mode and uh, just being really creepy this whole time, pretty much the whole time, pretty much this whole arc actually. And yeah. finally, they go out and stay out. And in the darkness, Satirical starts splitting off a, a clone. And a weaver senses it and tells him to stop immediately or she'll attack. Oh, I love this moment because, like, right as the lights go out, you have Seder just say, Weaver? 
with a question mark. And it's like, is he accusing her of doing the lights or does he just know that now that the lights are out, this is what's coming. And that, that escalates the tension to completely new levels. And, and it, it gets you to this feeling where like, you really think that neither side wants to fight. Like we know Taylor does not want to fight. We know Taylor's like, this is ridiculous. We don't have time for this. We have to go. We don't have time to fight these people, but you get the feeling that this conflict is just inevitable. Like this is just going to boil over no matter what. There's too much mistrust and, and doubt and seediness on each side of this thing to where it's, it's inevitable. Yeah. And she's bringing her nano knife to her too. So yeah, they're, they're all preparing for a fight and, and, um, uh, yeah, so it's clear to her that the big escapes are, are preparing to attack, which is true, even though she's also preparing to attack. Uh, so she and Satter talk openly, him admitting that he, he doesn't trust her, doesn't trust the straightforwardness of her stated motives. Oh, isn't that so great? Like, um, we know, or at least we think at this point, that Taylor does not have any any real or ulterior motives before here. We, she's She's actually being fully 100 right here. Like, she's just saying, I just want to s- save the doctor get some answers and then kill Sion. That's all I want to do. Um, but Seder is so used to people messing with him with these lies, with these half truths, with the deceit that, that the idea of someone being fully trustworthy makes them less trustworthy. It's this tangled mess of like probably years of ingrained lying and deceiving and everything. And again, it seems like it's just inevitable. It's just, it's just who they are. Like it's just, this was just going to happen. Yeah, she does seem to have a minor ulterior motive that we'll get to in a bit um, that she doesn't even admit to herself in her thoughts, which yeah. is a fun little, little unreliable narrator moment. Yeah, we will definitely get to that. Yeah, so Satter misses with, uh, messes with them, telling them that it's the cauldron capes who get twisted bodies and the natural capes who get bent in the head. He explicitly says this to Rachel, and we see, as we've suspected, that she already knows. Yeah, and what a heartbreaking moment, right? And it, like, I, I love the detail here. It's like, my heart dropped out of my chest. I closed my eyes. Yeah, Rachel said, her voice quiet. I clenched my teeth. That's right, she went on, a little louder. And so so not only do we get to see Taylor's concern here, both for the situation at hand that she's quickly losing control of, and then just the well-being of her friend, but we get to see Rachel processing this information. And, and I'm sure that on some level, Rachel has always known, like you said, um, that, that we, we've commented throughout the story that we've seen her like m- notice more and more specifically how Taylor is treating her. Like, like the way Taylor approaches things to her, like Rachel's been aware of it on some level, but this is the first time it's been stated so blatantly to her face here. And, and it feels like this moment of true realization to say, yeah, quietly. And then that's right louder in this moment feels like we're seeing both her her realization of the truth and then acceptance of it in that moment like she she fully realizes it fully digests it finally and then accepts it and and moves forward with it and that's something that's something that i i just don't think beginning of the book rachel would have been capable of doing um like i think she would have lashed out here and rachel is not the one that starts this fight and that's so different from everything we've seen of her earlier in the book yeah i think she's almost owning it she's she's right she does it doesn't it doesn't really hurt her maybe it hurts her a small amount but then she's she's like yeah that's that's how it is that's how i am she accepts it she owns it yeah she and and that's a big part of the end of of this arc and the, the book as a whole is identity right and accepting the person you are and and 
going forward with that in mind. And that's a huge thing for, for Taylor. It's what she's been searching for this entire time. And here we see in the last arc before the climax, this is, this is Rachel's full acceptance. Yes, that is who I am. You're right. I accept that and I will live with it. Yeah. Um, just to, just to skip forward a little bit where Marquis says, the people who are fighting on the front lines are the people who most know who they are and who's one of the people who leads to go fight immediately. Yep. It's is, Rachel. Uh, it's Rachel. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Lung who's, who's here, he loses patience, uh, with, with the talking and he uses his fire providing illumination. And now that everyone can see, uh, one of the Vegas capes sees the, the death knife. <laughs> that was so hilarious. This, so, yeah. So this triggers the fight. The Vegas capes all spring their attacks on the heroes using an obviously well-practiced combo attack. But despite this slight edge of surprise, the Vegas Capes can't win. There are too many strong combat powers among the uh, good-ish guys. <laughs> good-ish, good. Um, yeah, I think that just it reinforces the desperation, how how desperate Satirical was in this that move. He knew he wasn't going to win, but he fought anyway. He escalated anyway. And why? Well, I think we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. So Imp ends the fight, even though it was basically already over, by stepping into the middle of the group and opening Sveta's ball briefly. Yeah, and so the, it really struck me here, Matt, that Taylor describes this move of imps as, quote, insane. Like, the thing that she just did here was insane, because to Taylor, they've won. The, they, the end of the conflict is inevitable. They have the upper hand. They've won. Why not just finish it? The idea of de-escalating once you've done that is is something so foreign to Taylor that when Imp smartly does it and stops the conflict, de-escalates everyone and makes sure no one gets hurt, she's like, that's that's insane. <laughs> yeah, right. You took a slight personal risk to do that, too. Yeah. Because, because, because one thing you think of is like, oh, yeah, that is kind of crazy. And you're like, actually, Imp probably would have been fine if Sveta had gotten out. Right, and she didn't even open the ball. She just threatened to. Right, right. She just has the bargaining chip and uses it. It's not that insane. Yeah. yeah. So Satirical finally explains, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much of this is me not understanding and how much of this is Satirical being ex- extremely vague on purpose. But basically he says, it's for love in the end. We couldn't have gone down there without getting revenge, without falling to our greed and arrogance. So I was willing to wait, to sit back and put it off, to tell myself we didn't have the firepower, didn't have the numbers we needed to take on a group at the stairwell, wait until it was too late. Yeah, and I think I think we're going to try to crack this as well as we can. I'm not um, I'm not 100% convinced either, but I think if we if we look at Satirical as a character, we look at what we know about him and his relationship with Pretender, we can at least see that I think on some level he's being partially true or like he's he's not completely lying um so we look if we look back at, at the interlude in arc 24 we see Seder and, and pretender talking this is right after pretender has taken over alexandria and joined up with cauldron officially we see that satirical clearly does have some some feelings for pretender um he says Seder held onto the hand caressing it they say you shouldn't marry your best friend and now that you're a woman and he's joking but you can kind of tell there's some half truth behind that, that joking. So there is definitely some more than just friendship feelings there. Um, at least, at least from satirical side. Yeah. And, uh, and we see pretender like flinch visibly when right. uh, Taylor later tells her that 
uh, him that that, that yeah. satirical's dead. Yeah, yeah, and we also know that the Vegas Capes as a group in general are fiercely loyal to each other. Um, yeah, I mean the whole reason they left was because the the protectorate had the audacity to arrest pretender for murder after he murdered someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so like we we see like like that they're so loyal that like they consider that outrageous when it it seems perfectly uh, perfectly reasonable thing to do but we also see them kind of talk about the fact that it's possible that all of the cauldron capes are case 53s on some level like um uh they're talking about alexandria and how she doesn't age and doesn't change and um that 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 she's a case 53 i suppose all of us may be and Sater says all all cauldron capes and pretender nods and says to some degree or another. So that's again, you get the feeling that um, that they might have the same level of anger as the irregulars have that they have been betrayed or lied to or or something by this organization. Um, so so we add all this together and it's not hard to imagine that that satirical finds himself in a place where uh, just like the rest of the irregulars, he's angry at cauldron. He, he feels lied to. He feels betrayed. He feels played by people, which is something that he isn't really good at handing. And also he's a, he's, he's, he's in love. Um, so like, like he, he wants, he, he's mad at this group. He wants to take them down, but, but pretenders there and pretenders with them. And he's more with them than he is with the rest of the Vegas capes. Cause he left them. Like he, he abandoned the group to go with these other people. And so he's like in, a, in between a rock and a hard place. He's like cauldron lied to him. They manipulated him. They stole away the person that he loves and, and forced that person to reside in this Alexandria body. Um, he, he hates them, but he can't kill them. Not only would he have to possibly fight his best friend and, and possibly guy he loves, but he, he would possibly end the world also by killing them. So, so when Seder is caught between these two difficult choices, um, he does the one thing that Taylor can't understand ever. He chooses to do nothing. And I yeah. think that's, that's the big thing here. And that's to me why Taylor can't understand him because that's so different from how she would ever handle the situation. Yeah. Thanks for articulating all that. Cause all those elements were, were bouncing around in my head. Like I, I, I saw those pieces, but, but you, you kind of saying it all out like that. I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's it's the the true answer is definitely somewhere in there and definitely has to do with him and pretender um having yeah. some degree of feelings for each other one way or another yeah and and just deciding that he he can't really do anything other than go after cauldron but he can't do that either so right yeah right and i i love how that plays off if i love like the idea when i kind of stumbled on the idea of a satirical choosing inaction which is something that Taylor can't can't fathom. Yeah. I love how those two things play off each other. And that's why we see Taylor like so frustrated by like, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're doing it. None of this makes sense to me. And that's because that is just a core element of her character that, that making that choice or rather not making that choice is something that is, is unfathomable to Taylor. Yeah, and once again, this is another cool thing where the the narrator influences how you perceive the story because us being in her head, we're kind of like, I don't, I really don't understand why satirical is doing this. This is <laughs> right. this is inexplicable, and it's because usually, I mean, Taylor's pretty sharp. She usually does understand people, especially when they're making vicious uh, choices, and and you know, she's able to re- to follow their rationalizations, and thus so are we. Um, 
but uh, yeah. due to our perspective, we're like, I don't know, pretty mysterious. <laughs> but but but, yeah. but all the pieces are there, like you say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also like later on, uh, Panacea is just kind of offhandedly, offhandedly, offhandedly like, uh, yeah, all the uh, all the all the cauldron capes are tougher. So it's this this kind of confirmation that the cauldron capes are all a little bit physically uh, different. Right, right. Even even if the balance formula made no noticeable changes. Um, they're all a little bit different. It's a little bit against what was designed. Yeah. 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 So, so Jericho tells them to go on the Vegas capes will stand down and not, not bother them anymore. Taylor's group makes a break for the tunneling case 53s and the Vegas group just kind of stands there in Sion's path. Yep. So they're all dead now. Part of me wonders why satirical didn't just like make a clone and hide. Like it's like, are the clones like exact, like if if it's the like, does it have to be the original him that survives, or can it just be a random clone he sends off somewhere? I don't, I don't know, know how that works. Yeah, I don't either. It's uh, it's cool. It's, yeah, it's a uh, it's a fun it's a fun power idea, and we don't really know the answer. Right, because if I were him, I'd always if if it's literally any clone is him and can work off him, I just always have one like in a room halfway across the world or something. Right. Or I mean, he, he seems to be able to see through or communicate through his clones in some right. way because he, he always knows what's happening with his other clones. So right. if I were him, I would just be like like uh, Nilbog. I would just be like in a in a box somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's true. My, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So they they come upon the KCT3s that are tunneling through the steel. They kill them without hesitation yeah, or remorse. It <laughs> just like totally <laughs> destroy them. Yeah. And then Shadowstalker flees like a coward again. <sighs> Classic Sophia. Yep, yep. So 29.7. Taylor and her team slide down the giant, uh, fun anthill water slide that the Cauldron Capes have dug for them. <laughs> Matt, these bug references are killing me. Like, everyone's <laughs> a bunch of bugs. Everyone. Yeah, we're all, we're all bugs. Human-sized bugs going yep. down through the anthill. Yep. Yep. They emerge into a crowd of harbingers and get owned pretty handily. The dogs are, are pinned. Uh, kind of cool how that works, uh, just showing how versatile his power is. Lung is restrained by Alexandria. Uh, it takes Taylor a few minutes of getting stomped to realize that they're harbinger clones she's fighting. And even when she realizes that, she doesn't stop fighting. And when she gets, like, not even really an edge, when she just, like, loses less badly for a second, Alexandria just throws Huntress at all the heroes and kind of... <laughs> crushes them yeah i think this is a pretty poignant uh and hilarious inversion of that satirical conflict only a few minutes prior like in that conflict satirical and them were fighting taylor's group even though they never had a chance to win and now we have the same thing but reversed yeah yeah, i I agree that's interesting lung uh very kind of brashly tries to incinerate all their opponents including the people who they came to talk to which taylor realizes would have made their whole mission pointless if it had worked but luckily, the Siberian has made them all invulnerable already. Yeah. So, would you say that that all of our characters at this point are behaving completely um, irrationally, and and Taylor has 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 just total control over them? Like she's oh, just yeah. really really great job controlling her team at this point. Oh yeah, she's definitely got long well in hand specifically. <laughs> yeah. I, and Shadow Soccer. Oh wait a minute, she's gone. I want to see a version of this where they do come out swinging and like somehow manage to overwhelm them and kill everyone, and then everyone's like, yes, wait. What were we here for again? And then like Lung like triumphantly like holds up the head of Doctor <laughs> Doctor Mother and Taylor's just like, oh, uh, 
Oops. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think Satirical had a point where the natural trigger capes are so bloodthirsty that that's that's pr- fairly practical that that yeah. would happen. Um, and and we know yeah. that for a fact. Now, I mean, like they're designed that way. Like that's what yeah. that's what the shards were designed to to influence that. Um, all joking aside, though, I, I think this this really does serve to get into Taylor's state of mind as we move towards the end of the book right as she has she's losing control over this team like like we we see throughout this entire fight like she's more and more frustrated by the fighting and she can't stop it and like we see her multiple times say to not just cauldron and all those people but to her team as well stop stop fighting she's talking through a swarm she's yelling at them stop but they ignore her just about every time and like that the the amount of frustration that that builds in taylor is is quickly mounting yeah yeah so here she she does end this fight by telling the doctor that scion is here a conveniently timed shimmy through the structure backs up her statement and the doctor is willing to believe them thanks i those made things a lot simpler for us good looking out yeah saved us so number man apologizes to Rachel for the behavior of his clones. Yeah. He says, he says that they, uh, they, they're more based on hearsay and speculation than actual, actual fact. And I love that because it's still the same power. They're just using it in a more interpretive way than he is in a factual way. Um, and that's that like, it serves to once again, remind us that the clones are not exact copies of these people. They're, they're facsimiles. Yeah, I did think it was funny that he's like, I was more efficient. And what I read that as is like, <laughs> I would have just killed you. I wouldn't, have, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have wasted time hurting you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that they leave this part of the panic room and they walk through the hallway containing their stock of formulas, which is almost empty, which they've uh, handed out willy nilly after Scion's attack started. Yeah. Can I, can I just say here, like how, how much we play in trope? in this story without it getting like obnoxious and old like we're here at the end of this book and we're in the evil organization's secret lab and the hallway is lined with vials that are like the fruits of their cruel experiments and like this is something that like has been done so many times in films and books and games like you get to the end and you're in the lab of the bad guys and you see their you're diving down into the lab and seeing more and more of their secrets and yet here it feels not tropey and not cliche. It feels like a natural um, escalation of everything that's been happening. Um, and and I think, again, that's because it's rooted in an understanding of these people as characters. Because is Cauldron kind of like a mad scientist's wet dream gone amok? Yeah, but that's that's not all they are. Um, they're so much more than that. And, and we take this classic end of story location and almost turn it on its head here. And I just love, I love that we can do that in this book. And these things are all familiar, but somehow still new. Yeah, I agree completely. I feel like this is earned. Whereas like, cause you're exactly right that like this, this scene where they're walking through this hallway of vials, it reminded me of nothing so much as a goosebumps novel, um, which is, you know, (laughs) which may sound like kind of like an insulting comparison, but that what I mean is that you're exactly right. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a classic set piece, but, but it makes perfect sense that we're here. Like none of it is for, um, affectation. There's no affectation here. There's no like, Oh, and 
wouldn't it be cool if they then walked into a hallway with vials? It's like, no, they have the vials here because they rely on the vials for the power transformations. And they have them all here because this is their stockpile that they're using. And it all makes perfect sense and it's logical. Yeah. That's how we got here. We all understand why this is here. It's not, you know, uh, it, it's not like you're, it's not like you're looking at the scene and you're like suspending your disbelief, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Yeah. So so now at this point, and this is very, very important to the whole story in terms of the themes, Sveta starts to speak up. She tells the doctor that she has memories from her home before she was taken by Cauldron. She talks about how she knows she used to draw, but she has trouble doing it at all now. The doctor is brusque and uncaring at first, saying, we've caused you difficulties. Sveta says that the case 53s came for her when she was delirious, and the doctor tells her, we gave you a second chance. Sveta was probably going to die, and we were reminded that when Alexandria found the boy in the war zone, he was dying, and she asked him if he wanted to live. Sveta tells her now that she would rather have been dead at any point along this journey than have lived this life. And and there it is. There's the rub. Because when you, you, you hold this up as a choice between life and death, sometimes sometimes there are things in life that can be worse than death that worse than this, this choice between living and dying. Like, I don't know, for example, being tortured in a time loop for all eternity. Wait, which organization was it that made that power again? Who was that? that, that, that? Oh yeah. Uh, it was, it was these guys. Um, but seriously though, I think, I think that, that you're, you're absolutely right that this gets to the core of the themes of this book, because that's something we have, have talked about multiple times about the, the, the idea of making choices for other people. And this is something that Defiant specifically chastised Taylor about, I think it was back in arc 20 when she was, um, killing Alexandria and, uh, and, and trying to decide which side she wanted to end up on. Um, that's, that's a choice you just made for a lot of people. And when, when you act on behalf of others, um, you are robbing them of their own choice. You are robbing them of their own agency and their own decision of their own fate. And that is inhumane and cruel. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so this dialogue between the doctor and Sveta continues. I understand the doctor replied. She sounded a little impatient. Then damn me, curse me, tell me I will go to hell for what I did. At the end of this, I will face any and all punishment that I'm due, alive or dead. For now, we see our way through this. You don't get to do that. You don't get to get off with words and sentiment. So here we're really hammering in those themes of guilt, culpability, and justification that we've seen through Taylor, Taylor's story all along. And just like we've seen with Taylor, Cauldron is right in an immediate utilitarian sense, but at an immense human cost, a cost paid by the case 53s that they victimize and a cost paid by the doctor herself. And as we're later, as we'll later see by her partner, Contessa. Yeah. And I, and I love, I, I love that you're absolutely right. That, that from a, a calculating perspective that, the the choice here seems obvious that of course what they did was the right thing. But the thing that I love so much about this damn book is that there are no easy answers. Um, that, that none of this is simple and none of this is, is a quick decision that you, you should be able to make. And the thing that I think like when we, we, we've been doing this for a while and we have discussions with people and there are many people that listen to this podcast that, that vehemently disagree with me 
on some of the more gray aspects of morality prison in this book. Um, and I think that's fine. The, the part that gets to me is people that make it seem like it's an easy, obvious choice that not only disagree with me, I think it's fine to disagree with me, but to say, no, this is obvious. This is easy. 1 million people is obviously greater than 10,000 people. So that's easy, right? Um, and, and I think that what we're saying here is no, like that's not so Sveta here is, is specifically here to remind you of the cost of that choice, the human cost, not in numbers and statistics, but in the angry, broken emotions of a little girl that you turned into a monster. And in your efforts to save humanity, you have done incredibly cruel things to humanity, to humans, to the world. And, and you can sit there and you can chant on and on about your greater good. And you might be right. But here is Sveta, this poor girl who just has to sit back and watch her life be destroyed, watch herself turn into a monster, watch herself turn into a killer. And you took life away from her. You took her life. You took her meaning. You took her humanity, both literally and figuratively, away from her. And taking responsibility for that doesn't fix it. It doesn't make the problem go away. Um, so I, I just, this is not, this is, these are not easy choices. These are not easy things to decide on. Yeah. Another thing we've talked about fairly frequently is the trolley problem aspect of uncertainty and, and how you never, life is never so clean as, as saying here, pull this lever. Um, right. and it'll switch the tracks and you'll save, you'll, it, it'll, it'll turn out to be the utilitarian correct choice. And you won't find that if you had just known that if you unscrewed this screw here, then the train would have just gone off the rails and no one would have been hurt right. or whatever. Um, and, and what we find out, what's funny about all this is like we, we have this feeling, perhaps subconsciously, that Cauldron has been following Contessa's path to victory this whole time. Right. And, and that victory is in some sense assured. Mm -hmm. But we find out in Contessa's interlude that that's so far from the truth <laughs> that, that, that she, she actually doesn't, I mean, maybe this is overstating it, but she doesn't know what she's doing. The doctor is the one coming up with ideas. And right. Contessa is kind of saying like, yeah, OK, build an army. Yeah, well, I, I, we can certainly do that. Like, yeah. I, I can make that happen. But like, like, yeah, it, the, 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 the victory that Contessa is not on the path of that, that is that is on the path to is not save the world. That's not it. And you're right. Yeah. We see that like this, this all knowing self-assured organization that is, has convinced itself that every step it takes and every cruel and terrible things it does is at the course of the greater good. And they know it is because they have this person who literally sees that path, but that's not the truth at all. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause yeah, as we'll see, she's, she's blind to, to Sion. And right. so, so everything is really their best guesses, which is really no better than Taylor ever does at anything yeah, in terms yeah. of in terms of trying to do good and getting a huge amount of collateral damage. Right. But yeah. they've but they've convinced themselves it'll it'll all be worth it. And it's like it's like it's like you're pushing yourself to a moment where um you it has to be worth it. Like we have to keep going because there's nothing else at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctor angrily asks if Sveta wants her to mutilate herself to pay a penance. Sveta rejects this as well. She can't even pay the penance. She can't ever pay it. Instead, Sveta wants the doctor to say her name. The <laughs> doctor doesn't know it. <laughs> this is so good. This is so good. This is the core of it. Like, like the, the, the whole idea here is with Cauldron that to save humanity, to save the world, you 
must abandon your own by doing these things to other people. And like we said, this has never been more clear in this moment with Sveta. And then you see that, that there's no way you can make this right. There's nothing you can do. But the one thing you can do for her, the one thing you can do for her is validate her as a human being. Say her name, her name before she was a monster. Acknowledge that she exists, that she is a person, and, and you did this to a person. Remember who I was. Yeah. And who I am. And she can't do it. She doesn't remember her name because she, in order to do this, in order to push forward this, she had to reject the side of her that saw these people as human beings. And therefore, learning her name, we've seen that throughout the whole thing. They assign them numbers. They assign them numbers so they never look at them as people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know we're jumping around a little bit, or, or I, I am anyway, but it's, I, I always think it's really interesting to see how the doctor behaves very, very differently when she was younger because she hasn't had to put up this right cold veneer. Yeah. 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 So just another mask. Sense, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. She even has her, her fake name. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Scion arrives in the corridor behind them inspecting the vials yeah and this is one of a few beats we're going to get throughout the rest of these chapters where we see scion doing something and because we understand him on a pretty good level we can kind of guess what he's thinking or what he's doing in these moments we don't we don't get to ever see it directly but we, we're kind of there we can almost feel what he must be thinking looking at these things and i think it just goes to show you how much these interlude chapters are to fill us in on the motive of these characters yeah, I agree completely. That's you're you're very much you're very much with it. Yeah. So Taylor asks if the doctor has a power, and she says no, she doesn't. Lung points out that this would be a good time to obtain one since there's <laughs> there may not have any more chances. Um, interesting aside here, she mentions that there are, are no healing powers, just healing as a side effect of other powers, which I, I like. Yeah, in in retrospect, it makes sense if the whole point of these powers was to breed conflict and destruction. Uh, the ability to heal shouldn't probably be considered part of that. Yeah. The, the interesting thing to the, and, and I didn't write this down, but um, uh, the doctor says that she has the potential to trigger in her naturally. Um, and therefore, if she were to take a vial, she would has a greater chance of mutating because apparently if you have a natural trigger and you take a collagen vial that you might mutate or deviate more often. And that is interesting that we see, like, I think we learn exactly why, she never became a cape later on. Like, I think it's very important to the success of the organization that the person heading it, uh, that is working with Contessa is not a person with powers and is outside of this whole thing. But also like you see Sveta in this moment go like, Oh, so you are willing to do it to other people, but not yourself. And it's like another little dig. Yeah. Yeah. And and at this point she's, she's ignoring Sveta. Um, I, I like, I just like this little tiny bit here where, Manton leaned over and gave her a kiss on the cheek. Out of sync. Doesn't fit. Like Number Man was complaining about with his clone. <laughs> yeah. Um, just just a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. The group reaches the vials that the doctor wants to take. Uh, these are vials with a foreign agent, somehow less limited than the typical culture and powers. Idolin and the extreme deviants are the, the others who took vials like these. So Plan Z and Cauldron is to make a Doc... Doc... Mom Dolan... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, right yeah the foreign agents are interesting though because we i i we, we can speculate on what we think they are uh, it never tells us in this chapter i don't know if if you'll know by the end but um it, it seems like they're either 
um, the second entity's shards that were it was always planning on keeping itself, so it never like protected them, so that humans would like it, they were never meant to interact with humans in any way. Um, so they, of course, they force deviations. They stuff goes crazy with them. I think they specifically say they don't cause people to forget their trigger visions. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So. So yeah, I mean, I guess is that they're probably part of the the dead entity, maybe shards that it didn't intend to ever give out, or or they're the ones that came from the third entity that that flew through and mucked everything up. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't really um, I actually walk was walking into this with the idea that they were from the third entity, um, but I do like your idea that it's they could be the like private shards um, from from the dead entity because especially like when you think about what Eidolon's power actually is, it kind of seems like the kind of thing that, that the entity would have kept to itself. Right. Yeah. The, the ability to pull whatever it needs and suck yeah. power from other shards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, she, so the doctor takes that formula and mixes it with the balance formula, which she thinks is a power or collection of powers calibrated with humans in mind, which safeguards against physical deviancy. Yeah, so this is literally what they did to the shards to make them palatable to us, and they found a way to break that down and, and include it with everything. Yeah, um, I wanted you to go ahead and state your observation about the um, the the echidna vial, which I think is is accurate and not something that I thought of when I, I first think read we the do story. That. I think we do that later on. We do it later. Okay, yeah. never mind. Sorry about that. We we will do that. <laughs> we will do that. Yes. All right. So Taylor um, asks about second triggers, and the doctor explains them. A second trigger is a shard networking with nearby shards to recalibrate its power in an attempt to save the host. She says Cauldron has managed to stage second triggers, but even with their resources, including Contessa, the host usually dies. And Taylor is really visibly disappointed, despite the fact that she doesn't think to herself about this fact. Yeah, yeah, almost as if she had some kind of ulterior motive here. Um, It does make you wonder, like, Brian's the only one besides uh, the the King of Cups that we've seen have a second trigger. It makes you wonder what shards he has recalibrated with to get his new power. Because there were tons of them around. So, like, his power is borrowing power. So I wonder wonder where he got that from. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, we'll probably never know. Interesting to think about, though. Because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> um. So... So the doctor says um, the powers are poor. Foreign, yes, but poor. When we tested these, we got a defensive power utilizing warped space and a power that allows one to take over a nearby pair of humans' mind, body, and powers automatically on death. The one I hold should have attack or mover capabilities, if not both. So um, we'll, we'll probably get to this in the end of the little bit here, but she's not being completely honest here, is she? <laughs> um, she's kind of... <laughs> She's kind of underselling how important these vials are. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Are we? I'm less clear on whether we're talking about the same vials. I mean, we. I. I know Contessa says later in her interlude that she lists three vials of the foreign stuff that she considers to be Cauldron's hail mary. Um, yeah. So if th- these are them, then yes, Doc Mom is definitely underselling the power of these things. I don't know what other ones they would be. I thought that she made it pretty clear that these were the last of this type we had. Um, so I don't know yeah. which other ones it would be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it because that sounds like potentially like, uh, you know, Menya and Fenya and um, Butcher that she's describing here 
which are good powers, but not game-breaking powers. Um, so oh, yeah. huh. it's, it's like if those are, I, I'm, that's speculation, by the way, I'm not, I'm not sure. But like if, if that's, if that's what she's talking about, then, then yeah, those aren't, those aren't going to save them from signing on. Right. Point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So Taylor like is obviously thinking about ways to increase her powers <laughs> at this point. Yeah. And she's, it, it's really, really interesting from a narration point of view because she's not like thinking about how desperate she is for power. She just keeps asking questions that are like, what if, what if I take a second vial? <laughs> um, what if I take one of those vials? Uh, second triggers? No. Third, third trigger. Um, what about third? Third trigger. Third third, yeah. Third triggers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, again, I think this is this falls back into Taylor is an unreliable narrator at times because you're absolutely right that that she never specifically admits that her primary purpose for being here is to find out exactly how to make her spell herself specifically more powerful um she says she's here to save cauldron get some answers and, and then eventually kill scion but the get some answers portion of that is a little more specific to her than she had let on to even herself and again yeah this is this is this is taylor's unreliable narration in full effect here that that this is something that we notice that taylor seems completely ignorant to yeah, doesn't she bite her lip at one point? Yeah, which is yeah. a fairly fairly untailor like expression of of anxiety. Yeah, that's uh, right after she learns about uh, that second triggers cannot be reproduced. Yeah, yeah. So above them, the Siberian engages with Sion, her body intersecting his. He just moves on, uncaring. It's rude. I know. They briefly debate the right approach to take in fighting Sion. The Doctor and Number Man. Uh, argue that he's alien and abstract and the and abstract approaches are the way to beat him taylor disagrees stating that it's his human feelings that make him a threat and it's an interesting argument that i kind of ties into people's outlooks on on the, the the value of humanity but also we've talked about just just a few minutes ago that that cauldron the human element is one of the things that they kind of abandoned on their quest to save humanity the the, the idea of of individual humans and what makes people human um they've always dealt in the abstract as they were making the decisions and and taylor here is standing as the counter of that and i think we see throughout the events of of these next couple chapters that taylor's kind of right at least like the re the way they get out of this with their life is by appealing to the human emotional side of scion yeah yeah that's true so yeah at this point the number man scans her head with a thing and tells her that scott was right Given the signature, it's very possible you had two trigger events in quick succession. Not uncommon. The horror of manifesting your power, it prompted another trigger. Oh, the ball is gone. Oh, it's so, oh, so, uh, it's, it's out of the, it's out of the park. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. gone. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this is, uh, it's funny because I tweeted ecstatically about this when I learned that I was right. (laughs) And then someone was like, you mind telling me how you came to this conclusion? And it was so long ago that I I did not remember. So I had to do I had to do some research. And I think in the um, Crusader interlude, we learn that there is a popular theory in the world that capes have second triggers immediately occurring right after the first, um, and they aren't even aware of it. Um, that's something that the it's felt like we were bringing that up deliberately. Um, and then we see both Echidna 
and Chevalier noticed that Taylor's power was unique and either smelled or looked different. And I admit that, like, in the moment when I learned that Taylor was the queen administrator and, and her shard was unique and different, I thought, oh, well, that's what the smell and the and the look was. Uh, it was it had nothing to do with the second trigger. It was just that. So I'd kind of given up on being right about this one. But and, and it's very s- possible that that is literally what Wildbo was trying to show with Echidna and Chevalier. And it had nothing to do with the second trigger. But um, it led me to this. And I was right. So hooray. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think that's pretty cool. I I I always remember like on reread something that I noticed was when Taylor first describes her trigger event to the undersider, she talks about how she she basically had that mental breakdown, went to the hospital, and was just overwhelmed by all these like all, all this sensory input that made no sense and was just driving her crazy and didn't understand what it was or where it was coming from. And, and when I, when I read that on my reread, I was like, okay, yeah, I mean that's she had this horrible experience and then her brain is overwhelmed by a sensation that means nothing to her. And that's, that that's maybe where her power kind of recalibrated and gave her something that she could actually use perhaps. Yeah. That's very possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Scion finally having tired of investigating the vials puts out a shockwave that blows all the remaining vials and all the lights, including the vial that the doctor was just starting to drink. <gasps> um, Yeah. So it says, uh, and, and, and she'd said she needed a whole power. Would a partial dose only give half a power, a distorted one? I could only guess. Oh, oh, we can do a little more than guess, Matt. We know exactly what happens when you do that. That's um, right. The, this is what you were talking about earlier, though, because if, yeah. if we get down to the technical nitty-gritty of this, Noel happened because... We say specifically in this moment that the the, the different formulas tend to unmix after time, and yeah. the so the the balance one floated to the bottom, and whatever Noel drank, whichever one it was, I can't remember, was at the top. So Noel take took almost entirely the one formula without any of the balance to counter it. Um, and who was the other guy? What is his name? Oliver. Oliver. Thank you. He took almost entirely balance. Um, so this vial, on the other hand, was just mixed up. So in theory that same effect would not happen on Dr. Mother here, but we don't, we don't ever get to find out though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is really interesting that Oliver took something that was just designed to make him seem really human. Yeah. So he became kind of just every man. <laughs> he just yeah. could change his face to look like any kind of human. Um, yeah. Right. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that was uh, ever, was that ever specifically confirmed or is that, was that just me putting things together? I don't know. I don't I, know. I don't I, remember. I, I don't know. Um, it makes perfect sense, and it, it's it's one of those things where once you said that to me, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's obviously what that is, yeah, yeah. Um, especially considering what Oliver's power is, you're, yeah. you're like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's the power to seem human, which is <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Good job, Oliver. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so at this point, uh, we see that Sveta's sphere was also cracked in the detonation, and as Sion appears at the top of the stairwell, the ball shatters, which is an awesome moment of just being so rock bottom. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sveta, Sveta immediately attacks him and the good guys flee through the tunnel in, in the wall made by Siberian. But before the doctor can slip inside, a tendril snags her by the hand, followed by more and more of them. Each one chose the doctor as the mark. Had to pick someone, Sveta whispered. Couldn't focus on him alone. I'm sorry, but you're the best choice. <sighs> and she constricts around the doctor, crushing her into a bloody paste. Rest in peace, Doc Mom. Matt, isn't it true that, that the choices we make and the things we create 
so often end up destroying us. You just better keep an eye on your kids. This is what I'm saying, Matt. Oh, I they're, know. They're, they're out to get you. I, I know they're that. They're out to get you. Believe me. Sleep with one eye open. Oh, I do. It's very <laughs> tiring. So, yeah, I want to focus on this next bit a little bit because it's fucking crazy. And it's really easy to <laughs> overlook. Um, I don't know if I ever, like, really processed this until this, like, summary. So instead of running with her friends, Taylor stands in Scion's way and stabs him with her nano knife. <laughs> yeah. The man who just, like, stood there casually while Siberian just, like, stood inside him, continuously intersecting him. Um, she's like, I know what'll work. This knife. Uh, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's an insane decision. And, and what's more, we don't even really see her think about it. She just does it. It's, yeah. she's being almost entirely driven by her anger and her, her, her rage here. She's mad. And she, we, we saw how upset she was that the reason she came down here doesn't seem to be happening. She was hoping to get answers that led her to greater power and that's not happening. And she's lashing out here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty much it. It's it's borderline suicidal. Like, I don't know how she expects yeah. to escape from this because, yes, he did just ignore the Siberian, but it's possible he ignored her because he knew she was a projection. Um, well, and he didn't if, eventually. He ignored her for a while and he then ignored he her killed for a while, her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so she has no reason to assume that he wouldn't just like crush her. And yeah, so it doesn't do anything, obviously. <laughs> uh, and he just kind of like pushes, prepares to push his way through the door that's supporting the whole structure. And then Taylor does the next thing, which, <laughs> which is to grab Sveta by the face, um, who immediately repays her by pulverizing all the bones in her lower arm. Uh, but because she's sort of tangled with Sveta, at least she avoids being crushed when the ceiling gives away and everything falls. Yeah, yeah. So, Matt, like, in a way, like, we know Cauldron created Sveta. We know Sveta just saved Taylor from dying here. If Taylor saves the world, then mission successful, Cauldron. You did it. You did yeah. it. Yeah. Everything Amazing. was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. Poor uh, <laughs> I love love the moment, though. Taylor's first in-shock reaction about her arm getting crushed is, I just got a new one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's perfect uh, poor taylor poor taylor's limbs yeah how many limbs has she lost i don't know bugs lose a lot of limbs man you just pull it's, them off you know it's true yeah good point the dust settled and i saw what scion had come for his partner oh shit yeah it, this is one of those parts of the story where i really forget that you don't already know about this <laughs> like, like you, know, you know what i mean like like there's a lot of stuff where there's a lot of stuff where i'm excited that you're going to get to it i'm like oh, i can't wait for scott's reaction and then there's stuff like this where i'm like oh right scott's not aware of any of, of the this. garden of the, arms the flesh garden and and, <laughs> and this is where the powers come from yeah yeah so yeah 29.8 the vast room beyond the door is containing the second entity the entity is a sprawling experiment in the human form, a jumble of body, car- body parts, a jungle of flesh, all the aspects positioned gently and non-threateningly, beautiful in, in their way, always projecting vulnerability or benevolence in some subtle way. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think this is really well described. Um, I, I can perfectly imagine what this setting looks like. But I where I draw the line with that is 
describing it as beautiful because like even if it's benevolent and vulnerable it's still like faces and arms and legs and, and things veins and nerves for yeah. that matter and it's like all in different direction it just like just gross it's gross sounds beautiful to me scott okay when you're it sounds really deeply beautiful yeah so yeah taylor's <laughs> arm is ruined and it's only her durable silk suit that keeps it from being severed yeah in an alternate universe taylor says can anyone lend me a hand and then rachel just like throws like hundreds of the jungle <laughs> arms at her <laughs> yeah but she's not on her quip game right now yeah. because she's basically in shock um yeah so sueta meditates forcing her body to let go of taylor and retreat yeah, and this is this is what I read at the beginning of the episode. I'm not going to read it again here, but I yeah. read it there because I loved it. This 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 meditation that she has, the idea of my mistakes do not tear down this 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 building I've constructed. They are part of me, but they are not the most important part of me. And not only is that beautiful and tragic, but it is fitting with our characters, right? Like the mistakes you do, the the choices you make, even the bad ones, they are part of you, but they don't define you if unless you let them. Yeah, and and here we have Smitha actually mastering herself, pulling herself away, and and doing something that we've practically speaking never seen Taylor do. You know, s- stepping down, yeah, um, taking control of herself and her aggression, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's cool to see. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of the text in this chapter concerns Taylor dealing with this injury that she has. So I'm just going to kind of front load talking about it. it. It's the kind of injury that normally does just put a person into shock due to its severity. Uh, but due to its extremely rapid onset and the convenient lack of actual blood loss, she's not really in shock yet. She's just um, having some pretty traumatic sensations. And it, it brings an edge of panic to her thoughts, uh, which she's not used to having. Why had I touched her? I hadn't been planning for her to save me. hadn't even hadn't even been aware she could. She thinks to herself, "A passenger, <laughs> a passenger." <laughs> what? Could, it, I mean, what? it could be passenger, but she is just having this. She just has this like weird streak of semi-suicidal behavior. So, yeah, but what, I, I, I mean, like at least the scion suicide made sense. It was yeah. like I'm going to try to kill him. What does grabbing Sveta by the face do yeah. at all? is it like i'll save her <laughs> let me just grab her try- by the face and save her i do think she had a thought of saving her maybe grabbing her and using yeah, her flight maybe. pack or something but it ends up being the other way around sort of yeah um but uh yeah i don't know we also see yeah. like she she views the injury and increasingly her body as a inconvenience more and more throughout this yeah. and she's just annoyed by it as she's slowly going into shock yeah yeah she makes her way into the chamber, holding the entity, using her flight pack to coast along. It's hazardous because her bugs keep getting sucked into other dimensions as she moves, and she senses her allies hiding below in various small groups. I love how, like, we're just, like, casually talking about bugs getting sucked into different dimensions now. Like, the status quo in the final parts of this books, this book have just gone insane, that, that, yeah. that these things are just normal and accepted and like well yeah i mean there's por- there's portals to different dimensions everywhere so just in a second yeah better watch my step yep. i don't want to get lose a foot in a <laughs> dimensional hole <laughs> taylor realizes that this is the entity's well and then later on in the chapter realizes that this is only part of the well the part in this dimension yeah which is kind of confirmation that you know reducing that surface area that legend was so so 
optimistically clinging to um will probably just never work <laughs> like there's just yeah. too much there's just too much of it yeah um so yeah she crash lands near lung uh and she's kind of come to him for help but it's a it's kind of a bad time kind of a bad choice so he monologues at her which is something she points out telling her that he doesn't like being a follower he encourages her to accept that she's dead and uh, she kind of flops her ruined arm toward him. He continues Gross. explaining that he he keeps trying to fight Sion because he can't give up. It's not in his nature to give up. Nearby, Rachel is coming to help, but Taylor warns her off. Um, yeah. Um, sh- she knows if she asks him for help, that she admits weakness, then their non-partnership, their alliance, whatever it is, will be gone. And this is one of my favorite skitter moments reminds me of don't fucking underestimate me (laughs) where she's she's completely at a disadvantage she's she's in shock she has a a grievous wound she's basically lung is saying like "I'll, i'll i'll put you out of your misery now i guess and she says i'll kill you i gasped out the words he didn't react except to squeeze the arm harder again my back arched i writhed gritting my teeth with a trick deception by asking for help i shook my head he reached down and picked out the disintegration knife with this i shook my head again and immediately regretted not having spoken instead my vision swam i had to fight to keep my eyes on his he didn't follow up with another question come on i thought can't hold eye contact Hmm. he grunted burn it i said if you're angry i had to stop to get my breath angry he asked me beating you twice enjoy burning me but fuck fucking burn it off and then and then he does holy shit damn god damn yeah um and then later she comes to having passed out (laughs) being carried by huntress her arm is gone and she's completely flaccid with trauma and like it's so telling that the people that that taylor understands most the the character traits that Taylor understands most are the people like Lung, the people who are all about violence and respect through power. Um, she gets those people, and she knows exactly how to deal with them. It's the other kind of people that confuse her, like satirical. She she doesn't get satirical, but she gets Lung, and she knows exactly yeah. what buttons to push to get what she wants from him. Right, and, and on, on a certain level, I mean, what's so like fun about that is is that that is that that's sort of a facade for her, but that's sort of just who she is. It's, I I know I make a lot of breaking bad references here, but like (laughs) she, she is just sort of this monstrous person who is talking to this other villain in terms that they both understand. She, she, yeah, you're right that she's finding the right thing to say to him, but also she's, that's just her she, she's she's a vicious survivor so yeah she is part heisenberg i think you're absolutely right like yeah. she's a very complicated person and i i wouldn't ever say she's as as monstrous as walter white becomes in breaking bad but yeah that is absolutely a part of her and we see that explicitly at the end of this arc yeah 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 so uh she she's basically just like flopped onto huntress um not not moving but she's using her bugs now to lead lung and, and rachel to the others while she's practically catatonic in her own body 
and she also finds Sion standing before the central body of his partner. At this point, she realizes this isn't even the companion's whole body. The body passes into other dimensions, uh, as, as we said before. Yeah. So Taylor reasons that Sion looked for futures where he found his counterpart and got this one, not what he had in mind. Yeah, and once again, we can imagine exactly what he's going through in this moment, right? Um, if, if you if you treat him like the, the kind of child that he is, then you can see the vast levels of anger and disappointment and, and despair here. And I, this is an interesting uh, wrinkle in our whole path to victory thing, right? Um, the, the idea that the end of your path might be the thing you want but not exactly in the way you wanted it. And I think that's going to be really important, not only to, to our discussion of Cauldron and uh, Contessa, but like something that is going to matter to the end of the story as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, yeah. So here we find that um, they don't have a name for it, or at least uh, the number man doesn't know the name. Uh, I was only recently made aware it existed. The number man said, the doctor played things close to the vest. I'd be open to suggestions. Fuckster, Imp offered. It's not even a living thing anymore, Golem said. It's more like a place, a garden or something. <laughs> I like that everyone ignores Imp, but also nobody gives it a name. So, yeah. like, Golem's like, oh yeah, it's like uh, it's like a garden or something. Uh-huh. No, it's Matt. Matt, we're calling it Fuckster. I don't okay. care what the All fan right. name is. I don't care what Wildbo says the name is. Imp has spoken and Scott concurs. Yeah, yeah. you're not going to follow on that garden reference? No, 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 no. no, no nothing there, I guess. I no. could get there. I could get there. My <laughs> head is turning right now, but I'm I'm refusing to acknowledge it. Yeah, That's what I'm doing. Just, it all, all roads lead to Fuckster. <laughs> it's what it is. There's nothing I can do. It has been decided. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, let's go with it. So Sion kills the companion and then pulls the body with him, unsettling the structure support of the whole room. He uses his light to burn away the remains of uh, Buckster. Um, the, the <laughs> That's right. Tells Embrace him, it. Embrace it. <laughs> the number man tells him it's all going to collapse soon. Um, and, and here we have, he was lashing out, destroying the remains out of bewilderment, sadness, despair, anger, confusion. All of it unfiltered. The same emotion a child might experience with their first loss. What a child would feel when they lost something irretrievable for the first time. When something was stolen from them. And they had, hadn't prepared themselves for the possibility on any level. It's like when I lost Rolo, Brutus, or Judas, Rachel said. Yeah, I said. When my bro, Imp said, trailing off. How do you even articulate that? When he was broken, Taylor thinks. Yeah, I said fucking good and said i hope it sucks for him hey matt mm-hmm. hey matt brian's dead oh. <laughs> hey matt look at look at this, this is brian's dead yeah yeah imp's just talking about when he was broken not not when he died we're sitting here looking at Sion, looking at a loved one dead and the first thing imp thinks about is her brother and then stops talking but yeah she's just talking about when he went through the stuff with bonesaw yeah that's absolutely that's what it is those are some very interesting words. So, uh, question here, and we didn't write this down. Um, did Taylor consciously connect this to her loss at all? To her mother? I don't think she um, did. No, I don't think she did. No, no, I don't think she thinks of her mother at any point. Yeah, here. which which I think is something that we'll be paralleling 
more in the future, but that's very interesting that she listens to all these people talk about the, 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 um, the first losses they experienced, the, the irretrievable loss that they had. And she doesn't put herself in that position at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. She's, uh, she's kind of detached perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Also it's, it's been, uh, I was going to say it's been a long time, but it's been almost as long as it had been since Rachel lost her dog. So it's not like it should be that much less immediate. It's also your, it's your mother. Like that doesn't like you might get to a better place, but it is always going to be a thing, a big thing for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I really do like that. We're, 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 we're intentionally pushing this scion as child imagery. Um, we've been doing it a lot, actually. Like we, we, part of, part of his growth throughout these last few arcs was seeing him grow into adolescence. And so we compare him directly to a child learning about death for the first time almost, which kind of makes sense because he's this entity that is, so far beyond all that he can't really understand what death is on a specific level um and to complete our trauma metaphor he he has this thing doesn't know how to deal with the emotions doesn't know how to process it and so he's lashing out and he's bullying and he's um destroying and and this is this antagonist suddenly like without even fully realizing it for me until this these last arc or so has become just a perfect reflection of every single theme that we've experienced in this book so far. And like, I did not see that coming. I did not see like, like we've moved so big and we've gotten so like otherworldly and alien and this is giant interdimensional entity. But when it boils down to it, it's conflict is something terrible happened to it and it's sad and angry about it. And yeah, that's, beautiful like that you can distill this worldwide dimension wide conflict down to that one that one kernel that started this whole book off yeah it's it's the impact of trauma on on a, a human mind essentially because it's, yeah. it's the human part of his mind that's making him feel things about it instead right. of just sort of being like oh this is not a desirable outcome so yeah 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 it's it's incredible yeah um yeah and, and we'll we'll get to some more of that in a bit i think so yeah um they they this, they start dealing with the fact that everything's going to collapse on them golem extrudes a giant steel hand and cuff helps shape it to the appropriate size they hide under it and siberian makes it impervious uh taylor's distracted trying to think of ways to hurt Sion because taylor <laughs> yeah yeah because and and this is where we're start we're starting to really push the the comparison between them right like Sion's in the middle of this this rage filled burning of his loved one and and Taylor is in her own little trauma fed rage I want I hate you I want to hurt you I want to kill you she's her own little thing and they're both just do, doing their thing yeah yeah we got Svets off to the side here trying to control herself and not do that thing but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So she asks the number man to help with a controlled demolition to collapse the whole thing on Sion's head on cue. She talks to Sveta and asks her to throw pieces of the companion at Sion, which she does, messing with his head just before the collapse. So, okay, I know this is like a really extremely serious moment and Taylor's like barely alive and everyone's angry and hurt and, and, and dying and we're desperately trying to fight this guy and it's this depressing, sad moment as well. I know all of this and yet... 
Sveta tossing chunks of fuckster at his loved one is the most fucking hilarious thing I've ever read in my entire life. Yeah, uh, it, it is. An, it, I, I don't. I don't know if I found it funny per se, but it is a. It is a very like shocking image. I mean, you. you I, I feel like I feel the shock of, of, Sion in the scene because it's like, how dare you? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. It's it. It's um. It's such a out of left field thing to do. Yeah. Like, to like even think of doing. Yeah. Like even when, even when Taylor thinks of it, I'm pretty sure when I first read the story, I was like, I don't think that's going to work. I think <laughs> you're just going to get Spedder killed. Yeah. But, but it does work because he's so like, like shocked by it that he doesn't, he doesn't react as quickly as he could. Yeah. And, and I, I like that you said like that Sved is off to the side trying to deescalate and then Taylor swoops in and pulls her back into the escalation, pulls her back into the violence. And there's this moment here where she says, thank you, Sveta count. This as another brick on the structure that you're building. And Sveta doesn't reply. And, and part of me wonders, would she call that a success? Would, would Sveta think that helping out on this was, a success in her building of her self or another one of those slips. And I wonder, you know, I wonder. Yeah. I, I, I think it might even be neither because it's like, it counts as just violence. You know, it's just like, Oh, I, right. Her body was probably, her, her body was probably eager to do that. Oh yeah. She didn't seem to have to force it. So yeah. Anything her body wants to do, you can almost guarantee is a bad idea. Right. right. Or, or, or at least, uh, at least or giving at least, in to violence. Yeah, at least not, not the type of person she wants to be, not the, not the building that she wants to construct. Yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah, that's a great interpretation of why she's like not, not, not responding. Yeah, so they use Alexandria to enter, uh, to collapse the ceiling, first having her swallow a fly. <laughs> Matt. Matt. Just like, remember when I, I drowned you with bugs? Please put this fly yeah. in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. I promise. I promise. It'll just be one this time. Something about scorpions and frogs. I promise, though. <laughs> it won't coat your lungs with them. Yeah. Oh my god, that's perfect. So the hand does protect them after the collapse, and Taylor is able to sense Alex Tender approaching. Cyan has blazed his way out straight up providing them all an exit oh good now they've just pissed off scion that's it's a great it's a great adventure yep yep good submission accomplished taylor <laughs> so they just the, taylor decides that it's time to make a hasty exit shadow soccer and svetek intend for themselves it's urgent that they bring the footage of the garden to tattletale and the other heroes yeah, I just want to point out here that you um, originally typed it's urgent that they Brian the footage of the garden to, to Tattletale. And I was like, what? Brian? Dead? Where? <laughs> Did I? Yeah, I fixed it for you. But I was it's a like, weird. It's very it's weird. weird. It's like yeah. Freudian, Matt. You think about weird Brian? Freudian mistake. Think about footage yeah. of Brian? Thinking about footage of Brian somehow? Yeah, I don't know. I maybe don't read too much into it, but <laughs> I'm wondering where my head was exactly. Matt, me reading into things is kind of my job here, so <laughs> no, no, no. It's like it's like not, asking not Taylor to deescalate. I can't, I can't do it. It's true. Oh, what have I done? Okay, so <laughs> we have, as we've talked about, we have Taylor slouching around with her head hanging and doing everything through her bugs, including talking. And Imp says um, that that she reminds her of the old skitter saying, uh, 
creep factor a thousand. You're just standing there and you shouldn't be upright with the way your weight is, but you're, but you are because of that flight pack. You're not looking at anyone when you talk, not even opening your mouth. When you're talking, you don't pause for breath or anything. And there's no emotion in your voice. I'd almost think you bit it and your ghost lives on in a swarm. She waggles her fingers as she drew out the last word. Yeah, this is absolutely Taylor disconnecting herself from her humanity. Um, and I think it's like Imp is talking specifically here about what Taylor was like as old Skitter and how this is reminding her of old Skitter. But in those days, um, she was creepy and scary for a purpose. It was it was fear. It was to to lead by fear and not show weakness and always be um the powerful one and here like this is just this is just her being her now like this, there's no purpose to this there's no thought to it she's just doing it yeah just piloting her body in the most yeah. utilitarian fashion right and and like like i hinted at in the last chapter that reflects the fact that she sees her body as an inconvenience and she even says that we didn't talk about it then but the quote is whatever right now at least my body was an inconvenient puppet a vehicle for my power and my brain, nothing else. And she doesn't care. Like, she's like, like, this is explicitly the losing of your humanity. And here we go. This is, this is moving us into the preparation for this final, this final choice that leads us into the climax. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. This is following on her essentially losing most of her body and having it replaced with kind of a weird body that she wasn't used to. Right. And now she's lost another arm. Uh, we're not even sure if this is the same arm that she I like lost to think before. It is. Yeah, I think it probably is. Um and and so that was already like a step away from her familiarity with her body and her comfort with it. And now yeah. it's even even worse, I guess. Yeah. This this body that was so important to her that she was so self conscious about um, that we talked about throughout the course of the story that that she started off wearing baggy clothing because she was conscious of it and and the the switch to more form fitting clothing and the switch to looking at herself in the mirror and not being ashamed this was growth of our character um, this was change in our character we're here now where we don't even care about it the 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 limbs <laughs> that she has her her body itself is just another tool in her toolbox a necessary thing to keep her power and her brain running yep. So they reach the floor with the portal leading to the cave. And they head through, meeting up with Shadowstalker. Uh, she has no patience for Nick's and Spurs' games. They aren't forthcoming with the location of Taylor's allies, so Taylor just leaves. Golem and Cuff stay behind to guard them. Uh, Taylor thanks Golem for being human and caring about Revel, leaving Taylor free to care about everybody else. Yeah, and this is, once again, Golem falling back into that uh, that role, right? The person that can care about people, the person that can stay behind um, leaving Taylor to do the big other thing. Um, also, Golem was totally into Cuff, and now they're alone playing guard duty. So nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they'll sure they'll get up to something. Yeah. Um, so the gonna rest reach, of them gonna reach that hand into something. Yeah, they have some complimentary powers, if you know what I mean. <laughs> don't know where I was going with that, actually. I don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the rest of them take the dragonfly back to the in progress battle. Capes, Leviathan, Dragon's Teeth, war against Tyon using fortifications created by Kansu. But after a handful of minutes, it's obvious that Tyon has won. He's not even being methodical anymore. He's not experimenting. He's just efficiently destroying the enemy. He's he's venting through anger. Yeah, and we see, like, this is the first time we see Leviathan engage with him, and it's like, it's, yeah, they've got Leviathan now. Remember when this was a huge fucking deal? 
and it doesn't matter. It's immaterial. Just another another thing that Scion beats up. And the thing about this part, like, it's so incredible as as Scion like fully goes into his attacking. And I love this part where where it says the camera afforded the glimpse of Scion's face, tinted an orange red by the force field between Scion and the camera. His eyebrows were drawn together, lips just a little tighter together, lines standing out on his throat. And then Wildbow completes this beat with, he hadn't changed his expression once in the time we'd know him. We'd known him. And I love this because, like, it'd be very simple to just say, Scion looked mad. <laughs> and yeah. instead of just saying, Scion looked mad, it's like, we paint a picture of what his face looks like, and then finish that off with, hey, he's never, his face has never changed. And we don't even specifically say his face changed here. It's just, look, he looks mad. By the way, that's way different. And yeah. it's so it's such a great way of conveying that, conveying the difference between this kind of attacking and all the other attacking we've seen him do so far. This is this is human. This is rage driven. This is anger. Yeah. And it's a kind of anger that, that you believe like he's not he's not acting angry to scare people. He's he's actually failing to hide his his anger that he's actually feeling. Right. Right. Um, which, which is more visceral, I think. Um, so yeah, so at this point, uh, the number man points out that Taylor doesn't look so good and Rachel goes to keep her company. Yeah. Um, w- w- with a classic, with a classic, I'm not doing this because he told me to, but, but because I want to line, um, which is, yeah. which is great. Um, I, I love, I love Rachel so much. Yeah. That, that's, it was, it was funny and heartwarming at the same time. Yeah. 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 Just this little beat, uh, Gimmel was entirely different. Nilbog had been hard at work creating a horde of minions. Buildings had been reinforced, shored up with the shelves of what looked to be obsidian. Capes were gathered in bands and all were at attention ready for an attack at any moment. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally chill place, this. Just an army of Nilbog monsters and yeah. obsidian buildings. Like, yeah, it's like, I, you know, you you take this and you think back to the moment where Taylor and and Lisa stood over this thing and and watched um, how people were coming together to survive. And now it's like fully shifted over into just just another place where we're going to fight a battle. Yeah, I, I can't help but imagine you know being on the fortifications, surrounded by gibbering Nilbog minions. And, <laughs> right, like, right. Hey, hey guys, hey. Good it's to amazing. See it's amazing how quickly we've gone from like Nilbog was this thing that was locked in this town because we just didn't know how to solve the problem of him to, Hey, he's part of our final, our final stand now. And yeah. he's a key part of it. Right. It, it is. I mean, and it makes sense because everyone from Endbringers to Nilbog to, to pretty much every, every monster of every stripe is on the same page when it comes to, um, yeah, I like living in the world. I like having a world. Right. I like being alive. Um, so it's in our best interests to fight this other guy. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So at this point, uh, they land and they all head to Panacea's hospital. Amelia is there with her dad and their whole birdcage gang. Taylor demands that the others be healed first. Uh, but at least first, Panacea gives her some pain relief. Taylor at this point finally explains that her pain tolerance is due to a sensory recalibration from one of Bakura's bombs back in the day. Yeah, and I think this is something that I don't I don't know if it has been explicitly said in the story before that has come up in conversations between you and me and and us and and the rest of the community about this uh, detail. And I think it's great because it is very easy to write Taylor's 
seemingly high resistance to pain off as just another another form of plot armor. We can't have her get so hurt that she's debilitated, so we just have her magically be able to work through this stuff. But we see once again that Wildbow's commitment to detail does not allow that. He has to have a natural in-world reason for this. It can't just be because she's our protagonist. Yeah, and, and it's I think it serves the story, too, because she's not a brute. She doesn't have durability other than her, her spider silk armor. But it has been convenient story-wise that she's not always getting hurt. And then half of her narration is like, I was in a lot of pain and distracted by that. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So Tattletail arrives and they give her the lowdown. No real hope of better powers uh, going going the cauldron route. Um, so and, and then Taylor tells her, the, the main thing they learned, though, was that Sion was wrong. He can see the path to victory, and from the vision we saw, we know he can make mistakes. He plotted for a future that would be sure to reunite him with his partner, and he got his wish. It was just that his partner was brain dead, gutted, useless. Um, and they also learned that he can be affected emotionally. Yeah, and like we talked about last week, I think the pieces to the Sion puzzle are all here. We We know everything we need to know to defeat him. It's just a matter of... Um, how to execute on the information and how to mount a sufficient enough resistance to be able to actually use those things about him we know. And, uh, and of course, we, we, we're, we're quickly leading up to our, our solution for that. How are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to do it? And Taylor is going to, going to find a way because that's, that's Taylor. Yep. Um, yeah. So Marcus makes tea for everyone and he then waxes philosophical. He points out that the ones still fighting on the front lines are, in his words, the ones who know who they are, um, or in Taylor's words, they're the monsters, the crazy people. Yeah, which I mean, it's definitely like that's where she interpreted, and that's not where he was going. He, I think, specifically says that's not quite how I would have put it. Um, yeah, but yeah, this is this is back to our theme of identity, and we talked about this earlier in the arc as as well um, when we were talking about how how you view yourself and how you accept the different parts of yourself, and how Rachel seemingly was able to do that. Um, she knows who she are, who she is. She knows what her role is. Um, and, and I think we, we hear and echo back to Glenn here as well when he told Taylor, you know, to embrace both the good and the bad sides of you because those are still part of you. Um, and you can connect this back to Scion, right? Like he had a role and that role was taken away with it from him with the death of Fuckster and he was lost and confused for a while. And then he found another role through, uh, Kevin Norton. And then, uh, then that kind of got taken away from him and then someone gave him a new purpose and then someone killed his, his, his buddy. <laughs> so he went crazy. Yeah. And, and that's like finding your identity, finding your purpose, finding what your role in all this is a, a central theme throughout this whole thing. And this is Mark was kind of laying it all out for us in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked earlier to just to call back to how, to how Rachel is one of those ones who both sort of probably counts as a little crazy and also definitely knows who she is at this point. I think it took her some time, but I think she does now. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. So Sion arrives uh, at, at this location that they're at. Bonesaw and Panacea finish healing Doormaker, and when he's rejoined to the Clairvoyant, the doorways begin to open again. Most of Taylor's team goes outside to fight, and Panacea comes over to finish sealing up Taylor's stump. And when she comes over, Taylor admits that she had an ulterior motive in wanting to go last. Uh-oh. Door- yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it's, the, the only two people are le- that are left now are 
Taylor and Lung, right? Like everyone else mm-hmm. immediately stood up and went out to fight. But these are our two characters who are lost and seemingly without a role, so they stay. Yeah, and and Lung is at first tries to pretend that he's happy with this new role, but then he's like, uh, "This isn't this isn't big enough for yeah. me." Yeah. yeah. So so Doormaker opens a door to relative safety, and there's a short break where everyone files through into the, into this cave. Taylor then says that she feels like she's close to coming to a conclusion on this question she's been pondering. She feels like she has the potential to do more than what she's been doing. Panacea tells her to think back to a time when she was the strongest and to times when she was the most scared. And Taylor does that and finds that those were the same times. And Panacea says, I think those are the times when you're most like you. And it sucks, I know. It's horrible to think about it like that. Because at least for me, it wasn't a time when I liked myself. Just the opposite. Um, And then a bit later, um, I nodded. The image I'd seen on Glenn's computer screen crossed my mind. Me, unrecognizable, even to myself, surrounded by my swarm. I'm just a little bit of a monster, I thought. I can't put the blame on my passenger. I exhaled slowly. I could hear the seamer screaming. (laughs) So, So other than being super ominous, like storytelling and, and prose um I, I like uh just this idea i like this idea that that you are most like you when you're when you're most scared um and because it, it, it or, or when or when you're at your strongest because it's um you don't know who you are until you're under pressure i think is a is a truism yeah um, no i agree with that i think it's very interesting though and i think we'll get into this when we uh, see what Taylor's decision is, but um, Panacea here says like that's the time I liked myself the least, and yeah. I didn't I didn't like that me, and then I did something about it because I didn't like that me. And Taylor's interpretation of this is because she desires that power so much. Is if the time when I'm most powerful is when I'm most scared and I'm most unhappy with myself, then I just have to accept and be that person. And that's, mm-hmm. um, of course, that that right there is Taylor's tragic flaw. It's like the, the the recognition that you are a monster is character growth. It is change. It is realization. But Taylor's tragic flaw is that she has these realizations, but they don't change her behavior. They just reinforce her behavior. And yeah, so she just doubles down. Yeah, yeah. It's like I fully accept that I'm a monster now, and no, I'm not going to try to be a different person. I'm not going to change myself with that realization. I'm just going to come to terms with it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she finishes this up by asking Panacea to help her to remove the walls, the restrictions on her power to deregulate it. Uh, oh no! Actually, she yeah. she asks Bonesaw first because Bonesaw's. Yeah. So so we're going to Bonesaw. To say, yeah. please tinker with my brain. Yeah. And Bonesaw, Bonesaw <laughs> recommends that she run it by Tattletail before pulling the trigger. Because, you know, it's kind of a big deal. You don't want to just go monkeying around with, with your brain like yeah. that, says says Bonesaw, that character. Um, <laughs> but Taylor knows that Tattletail would stop her. Yeah, yeah. And I think she says, like, we're like, we're, we're being very upfront with the consequences of this decision. It's like Bonesaw is telling her 90% chance that you lose yourself, that this messes with your brain to an unfixable level. And don't, don't seem to care at this point. Yeah. And there's so much character stuff going on here because you've got, 
you're seeing Bonesaw's character change where she she's basically being pretty much a good person here. Like she, she right. She first recommends that that Taylor run it by her friend, and then Panacea says she'll do it, and then Bonesaw says you don't do brains. I'm I'm inexperienced. Yeah, Panacea said. But even in experience, I think I can do a cleaner job than you. And Tattletail is less likely to catch on if you aren't sawing Taylor's skull open. I wasn't talking about experience, Bonesaw replied. Panacea stared down at her hands, covered in tattoos with a rich, vibrant red in the gaps. Um, so, so, so yeah, in, in the first place, we have Bonesaw again being like sensitive enough to be like, um, I'm not I don't, I'm not talking about an experience. I'm saying that the last time you did brains, you really regretted it. And I don't think you want to go there. Yeah. Um, and. And then Panacea acknowledging that in a, in a nonverbal way, but going through with the decision anyway. Right. And then Taylor thinks, I'm sorry. It wasn't an apology for the consequences of the first note. No, Dinah hadn't approached me since then. She hadn't decided I'd fulfilled the terms and deemed it okay to finally contact me again. Two words telling me that something ugly was going to happen directed at me. Um, so we're, we're again, ominous hitting, hitting that ominousness and, right. and calling back to, just some foreshadowing from arcs and arcs ago. And then, of course, Panacea laid her hand across my forehead and it all went wrong. Yeah, so that this is it. This is the moment, right? And I want to talk about this forever. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like we've we've like, like I said way earlier in the podcast, we've been we've been playing in the final. We've been in the final act of Worm for, I think, probably a couple arcs now. Um, but there was one more thing we needed to get through in order to shift into that climax. And that was this no looking back final, uh, choice, the, the, the climactic choice that our, our protagonist has to make. And this is it. We're here. This is the choice. This is the moment. And, and this is the moment that shifts and focuses, um, the climax into what it's going to be. And we're here. And like with everything else in this book, it is amazing to me that, this choice is a simple thing is, um, am I willing to give up my humanity to access more power to kill the bad guy? And the answer that Taylor comes up with is yes. And you can take that one relatively simple choice and tie it back to every character moment that Taylor has had throughout this book, every moment of conflict, every moment of uh, crisis that, that she has gone through throughout the entire book is tied up in this one little choice. Um, the, 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 the need to have a purpose, the need to have a role, the need to escalate situations, uh, to the, 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 the trauma surrounded by being trapped and powerless, the, the trying to find your identity to the, the ability to look past or ignore consequences, um, for the sake of, uh, that power. It's all there. It's all there in this one little choice. And that's everything. It's everything. Yeah. Yeah, we've 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 set up this character so so perfectly and meticulously and consistently that we know she's going to make this choice, and and we we understand her so well. And and even you know when you're reading the story the first time, and if you're reading it quickly and you're on Team Taylor, you're actually like, yeah, which is may sound insane to you since since you're you're reading this in a much more <laughs> analytic way, but right. but um. But seriously, like you, you're like, you're like, yeah, go for it, go for it. Because this whole time you've been egging her on, um, even though her, her aggressiveness and, and escalation hasn't necessarily been healthy for her. 
And I wanted to say also, yeah, I mean, it's, it's resonated through through this character and is very consistent with this character, but it's also a theme that has that has echoed throughout the entire story through many other characters. You've, you've had, a, a, you know, easily a, a dozen other major characters like Alexandria that is the first one that comes to mind where they're a person who who is forced to make this kind of choice of um, do I do I stay as I am or do I take a risk and change myself? Um, which is something every every cauldron cape has to do on a level because they're making that choice a lot more deliberately than a natural trigger. Yeah, you're right. Um, and and we, we've seen so many of these characters regret their decisions uh, in a way where they 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 get way down the line and, and they have become essentially a different person than the person who made that decision. And um, it's again, yeah, it's it's a very consistently explored theme but interestingly never in a way where it feels um overwrought you know um like like that's actually somewhat surprising to me that this that some of these themes can be so pervasive and i think the answer is that they're so subtle they're they're not beating you over the head they're just there yeah Yeah, and it's it's all tied to character so it doesn't feel preachy because this is Mm -hmm. this is um something that's rooted in the choices of each and each and every one of our characters and, and the type of people they are. So yeah, you're not, you're not beating themes over your head because it's, it's not wild, both standing on a pulpit and saying, um, this is what I want to say about morality. This is what I want to say about, um, making decisions for the greater good that end up doing bad. Um, he's not making clear cut moral decisions throughout this. He is like he does with everything, painting every single side of the issue and showing that the issues are more complicated. I mean, from from terrible Nazis to evil organizations that kill thousands to um, scared little girls to the bullies of those those scared girls, like everything is deep and rooted in character and and those people's essential humanity. So it is not like like you said, not like overwrought and overdone it's just this is just who these people are yeah yeah and and it's exactly the appropriate level of build-up that we need to get to right this climactic decision right and and i want to say again that like this is a re- this is a moment of realization for taylor um where she she says to herself finally she admits to herself i am a little bit of a monster and i i am going to accept that part of me but the tragedy is that I cannot change that. That, and and it's a tragedy both personal in that she is not the type of person who can who can turn down power or or turn down uh, the role that she's assigned to herself or 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 turn away from being the one to make this call. So that's a tragedy internally, but it's also a tragedy externally because it's almost as if the world of of this universe is demanding that Taylor be that person is demanding that this poor formerly 15 year old girl that just got shoved into a locker has to be the person to be the monster because the world needs that monster. And that's tragic on its own too. And it's not fair. And it's like, it's really sad. Like it's really sad that we're at this moment where it's, it seems very clear that in the story that Taylor is going to, lose herself lose a fundamental part of herself uh in this choice and like i said we we don't know exactly 
how this all unfolds next arc, but it, it, it very much paints a picture that she is, this is, she has crossed a point of no return here and yeah. the results are going to be devastating. And yeah, it's like, it's exciting to get to the con, the, the climax of this book. I'm very excited for it, but this was, this was really hard for me to read. And it's like, you see it coming and there's just nothing you can do about it. And that's exactly her too. Like she was always going to make this choice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I could kind of go on and on about this and make yeah. comparison to, 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 to Alexandria and all these other characters. But um, I think I think this stands. Yeah, I stands think, as it is. And yeah, I think yeah, I think the only the only thing we can say about that is, yes, every other character in this, we've tried to, to relate them back to Taylor every time we saw them. And that's because every other character in this is going through some sort of similar uh, yeah. process and similar movement and it's it, it, mm-hmm. the the ability for the story to tie itself all back to each other is one of the things that i love the most about stories and i think like that's that's something that wild Bill does really well here and 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 here we are with everything coming together yeah right but we're not done yet nope we have uh, the final interlude which which is of course another character who's worth comparing to taylor um oh yeah but we start out with the thinker entity flying through space and time and dimensions. Uh, and we see that this entity is much more philosophical and it's considering the end goal of the whole process that, that the species is undergoing a complete and total mastery of all things. And somehow the worm species must find some solution, some resetting of universes, reinvention of existence, something beyond the zero sum competition that dominates their species so that they can continue in in some unlimited way. Hey Matt, someone needs to teach Fuckster about the SMART method method for goal establishment. Oh, okay. What right. what is that again? Um, it's a specific, measurable, achievable, um, relevant time. You're such a nerd. I know. <laughs> uh, my favorite part about this, though, is is yes, how stupid this makes Scion feel by comparison. I think a lot of this arc has been centered on on painting Scion as this child, like we said, and and the writing itself established it as well. This is this entity is smarter, more equipped, better in just about every way than than Scion, at least at least mentally. Scion's this, he's he's dumb boy, little little dumb boy. Yeah, it's funny how. I, it, it, he, he does seem a little dumb because of the way like he, he keeps sending her messages and she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm like way, way ahead of you there. Uh, yeah. sh- sure. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying she, because that's the form that she takes. And yeah, I um, think that's fair. not really true though, but yeah, she codes, so the, the she thing- codes her weird garden as female. So we're going to, we're going to do it too. Yeah. 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 So the thinker prepares for the arrival at the destination planet, performing deep simulations, focusing it doesn't get irritated per se, but you can tell it would prefer that its partner stop sending it broadcasts, um, like like we said. Yeah, it's like it's like the end of a really long day, and you're just trying to drive home, and like you're in the middle of planning out what you're going to do for dinner, and your stupid kid in the back seat just keeps screaming "destination" at you, and you're like, "Yeah, I know where we're going, Johnny. Shut the fuck up." <laughs> now you made me want to teach my kids to do the, the whole uh, <laughs> destination trajectory um please don't tell them to shut the fuck up though no 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 we'll, we'll, we'll do a back we'll do a back and forth where i say agreement yeah now okay, i'm gonna do you, this you need to record that and we will we will put it as bonus content in the podcast all right we'll do 
So the thinker at this point detects the mysterious third entity approaching. The thinker chooses to meet with the third, and they crash together in space, exchanging shards. The thinker is pleased with this. It has found shards concerning philosophy and psychology and imagination. New possible futures are opened up. Yeah, and it's like, so, like, we're seeing Fuckster grow up. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. You can't stop me. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, like, moving past the idea of just simply conflict. But, yeah, you know, I like that philosophy, psychology, imagination. It's it's maturing into an adult state almost. Um, and it makes you kind of wonder wonder what things would have been like i mean sure i'm sure we we see that very specifically but in this moment you're like oh maybe it's going to learn that conflict isn't the only the only solution well yeah not quite i had that same thought where i'm like oh maybe it'll it'll like think of more philosophically motivated ways of solving the problem that it's trying to solve but but no you see that what it does is it it looks to the future again designing an optimal outcome and the future vision simulation whatever it is is just as bad, if not worse, than the world that actually came about. Yeah, uh, the, it sees a group of capes discussing the arrival of new super weapons, quote unquote, and the arrival, uh, the inevitability of war between the other nations. The thinker and its partner, who is obviously, you know, basically Scion, uh, take the form of a woman and a man, assuming the role of powerful capes in this world. Yeah, could, could we just before we get into this proper, I just I just want to talk about how great the transition to this is because we use Wildboat uses those page break icons, um, which I think is just a, a square, um, and yeah. and moves us forward into a new section and a new scene with brand new people that we don't recognize at all, and and it takes you a while to kind of get your bearings in this new scene suddenly. And it isn't really until a good way through the section that you realize what is actually going on here. And I, I like this because Wildbow has kind of like books teach you how to read them as you go through them. And one of the things we've grown to understand is that interludes themselves tend to break established rules. Um, you've had interludes that hop from perspective to perspective. You've had interludes that stay in one. Um, you've had interludes that cut back and forth between time. They don't necessarily follow standard rules. So you almost don't even know what's going on at this point. Like, are we, are we, are we breaking trend again? Or are we not? And it's just a, a fabulous way to kind of subvert expectations as you move into a new section. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. Uh, and, and part of the fun here in this section, once you get your bearings is puzzling out who is who, because we've got capes named Arsenal, Clarent, Partisan, Black Knight, and, and we recognize some of their powers, some of their weapons, and in some cases, we recognize given names like like Richter and Hannah. Um, and and so it's, you know, if you reflect on it, you, you get that these are these are the people we know, actually. But these are, I think, only the older capes, the ones who were um, I'm going to I'm going to whiff this. But I think it's all the ones who must have been born but before around 85, which is when Sion showed up mm -hmm. um, and, and the timeline diverged, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm interpreting that quite right, but I you, think you, you probably are. Yeah. I think I think we notably only see like the older protectorate capes. Yeah. Um, would you like me to take a shot at who's who? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know there's probably clues in the tags, but I haven't looked at them because I don't do that. So, okay. Um, this is me just taking guesses. Um, some of these are like fairly obvious. Like Miss Militia is very clearly the one that's named Hannah that has guns. Um, right. Richter is Richter. <laughs> right. um, uh, they do use the word Colin. And yeah. Arsenal is using a halberd, um, so I'm guessing that Arsenal is is this this future's version of Defiant. 
Um, the one called Partisan, they seem to take a very long time um, showing that Partisan is giving inspirational speeches, which immediately made me think of Chevalier. And then Partisan goes over and like has this side conversation with, with Hannah, with Miss Militia, which reminded me of the fact that those two had a thing for a little bit. Um, so that's what I'm guessing there. He doesn't have his cool gunblade though, which is, it's really sad. He just has, I think he just has a spear. Yeah. I think he had his, I think he might've been wearing armor. I mean, I I think you're right about that guess. I I, I didn't bother to to recheck the tag. So I'm not hundred percent sure on any of these. And then they describe Clarent as a, a person who has a power that gets stronger over time. And the only capes I could remember that specifically have powers like that is, uh, our poor, frozen in time guy dauntless from the beginning of the book and then also crawler like gets more powerful over time but that's weird mutations and different so uh, dauntless seems like a pretty good guess black knight though is one that i have no idea i sat with this for a while i think we learned that like he always wins when he fights when he fights fair human yeah yeah I don't yeah know. so I don't know. there was another important character who who uh who had a strong advantage and couldn't be defeated against fair humans but oh is it was, jack yeah i think that's the implication oh oh yeah because yeah, he, yeah yeah oh weird so he's like a good Tasty. guy huh i did I, I was trying to think of the good guy so i didn't even i didn't even go there huh yeah i mean i think i think that's cool and, and i mean yeah. I, I actually i like that this is as brief as it is because if it doesn't really bear to like dig too much into this it's just like yeah that, that's fun. yeah it's just it's, it's just fun cool. yeah 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 yeah, I, I like it a lot, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Arsenal is suspicious of the two entities. Good old arms master. Always suspicious. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I like that it's him, too, because we're like, yeah, yeah, Colin. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and and the, the thinker can read his motions and manipulates him, sort of uh, reading his mind, reading his emotions. And, and, you, and then after she's manipulated him, she uses a power on him, wiping his memory and placing a block, uh, keeping him from thinking about the suspicion. Yeah, yeah. The the details in this are so good. I, I love the 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 sh- like. We're still in her point of view, so we're seeing how she's subtly manipulating them. I like th- this line. The entity nodded. It feigned a moment of wariness, assuring these individuals it was merely human. And yeah. that's such a great little beat there. It feigned a moment of, of wariness, and like the 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 coolest part about this of course is that just like you said we see this is the optimal version of the world as far as these entities go and it's still a shit show for for the humans there's two sides locked in a war there's super weapons which i'm guessing presumably are are end bringers of some sort um are being employed in numbers far greater than they were in in our story we've seen it's it's death and destruction and it's hard to believe there's a world in which our characters have less of a chance of winning than the one we're currently in. But the fact that Fuckster can just literally like delete someone's memory anytime she detects that they're getting close to finding out what's going on paints a picture where they're just screwed. Like there's nothing they can do. The cycle's going to end. Everyone's going to die. Like it's crazy that, that, our story of worm is the optimal one for the humans <laughs> after everything right. they've gone through. Yeah. Cause as bad as Sion is like, imagine if he were a cold calculating, charming psychopath. Yeah. Imagine if he um, were smart. Yeah. Right. You're stupid. Sion. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, it, it is kind of chilling watching how, I mean, she, she isn't human, but it's, yeah. she's in this human body and she 
may even have human emotions kind of the way Scion does. So mm-hmm. it is chilling watching how coldly she manipulates these people and, you know, arranges their deaths and suffering basically. Yeah, effortlessly too. Mm-hmm. Like the, the block, like she's able to block things out of their mind. Like we learn that the entire conflict that's going on here is, is mandated by her. This is not just natural conflict arising because people have superpowers. This is, She's literally putting blocks in people's minds so that the two sides will never be able to come to an agreement on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So, so yeah, she she finishes the simulation, um, and is pretty happy with it. And at the last moment, she replaces uh, her own ability to see the future with that of the third entity, and loses sight of that future that she had just chosen, and then crashes into Earth. Um, unprepared, too hard, and uh, and it, things are going wrong. Matt, what did Danny always say about altering your shards while driving? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, this this was actually something you you did not point this out for me, but you gave me the little tiniest bit of thread that I yeah. pulled I, pulled the shit out of, um, and yeah. and and this is this is a really fun beat that that. Scion loses their loved one because they weren't paying enough attention to the present. They were distracted and thinking about something else and crashed and died, which is the same fucking thing that happens to Taylor. That's yeah. so wonderful. And it connects those two characters at a fundamental level um, in this moment where they're going to be directly going against each other. And that's such a clever idea. And it's never explicitly stated in the text. Um, this is just something that is there if you want to find it and it might not, it might not have been even explicitly intended by Wildbow, but it feels yeah. like it, it is. I think, I mean, I think a lot of the parallels are certainly because you, what you were saying is you were saying, yeah. And, and what's cool. We were talking way earlier and you were saying like, yeah, what's cool is that, is that this is all, even Scion is someone who, who has lost someone and he's reacting um, to that loss and to the, to the trauma of that loss. Right. And then, all, and then all I said, I wasn't even, I was just like, I was trying to be as non-leading <laughs> as possible. I, I just said, um, yeah. And think about how he lost that, per, that, that loved one. Yeah. Um, and then you, you got, you, you got it, which I, is, I went about, there and, and, it, and, and that's the popular fan interpretation that, that, um, the, the, uh, thinker entity was texting while driving. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's, I feel like that's a parallel that's 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 definitely there to be found. Yeah, I mean, like even if it's even if it's not as explicit that that correlation, there is definitely a correlation between the two of them have lost someone important to them, and that trauma drives their actions going forward. And that is absolutely something that we see in our main character and. The fact that, once again, like when you're setting up a conflict between an antagonist and a protagonist, if you have their main central issue be something that is parallel to each other, then that conflict doesn't feel as manufactured. It doesn't feel as contrived. It just feels like two people set on a path that they're going because their needs happen to intersect with each other. A a natural conflict will happen. And because those needs are driven by a similar thing, it helps that conflict attach itself to the themes of your novel because then you get both sides looking at that central theme of trauma and how we live and survive with the terrible things that happen to us and what they do to us. And suddenly we see that from two different sides 
in our our final end of the book conflict and that's so great it's so smart yeah i like that i like that a lot well said um yeah so now we see that as we've seen many times before we thought this was from one person's point of view but it's sort of from someone else's point of view because now uh the young girl fortuna wakes up having experienced all of this as a trigger vision this girl is uh living in some kind of low-tech settlement on another earth people have been turning into monsters in, in the area recently and she realizes on some level the importance of what she's just seen she sees how to keep it uh, she 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 kind of gets how to keep the memory if she follows some simple steps so she follows the steps, drugging herself and falling asleep. Yeah, this is a really great shift. And and um, I, I know we'll probably get into this as we go, but I love, once again, the, the detail of seeing someone's power and how that power is manifests itself internally from their perspective. Um, I remember we, the first time we talked about this is when we got to see what Trickster's teleport power looked like back in Arc arc 17 where he like felt the surfaces and could like see the links between the surfaces that he was about to to teleport um that was really cool and i think this is another example of that how she just thinks something and then all of a sudden the steps the number of steps appear and then she can look at each of the items on that list of steps it's it's really it's really cool yeah it's cool because it is it's it's that future site but it's and it is still really powerful, obviously, but it's it's truncated in a way that allows her to conceptualize it and, and use it. Right. Yeah. So she wakes up again later, having retained the memory of the trigger event, and she understands the threat that she's facing. So she begins to ask her new power how she can stop this entity that she's seen. Um, and she asks herself, can she have everything? Can she save everyone from the godling and still keep her uncle with her? And the answer is no, there's no path to that to that victory. Yeah. And this is such an important detail, isn't it? And this is, goes back to what we were talking about before the, the truth of cauldron and the truth of this power. Um, having this power does not make the impossible possible. Um, and this explains cauldron explains their actions. Um, not only does it explain why they can't just win automatically, it also explains why we kind of see them dehumanize themselves because when you have when you set up uh i want to build an army okay 3500 steps um the torture and murder and killing of thousands of people doesn't become a thing it just becomes step 453 instead of what you're actually doing and that is dehumanizing yeah and you can't just be like well I want to do the plan, except not that step. Right. It's like, no, that, that was the path. Right. And it, 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 it removes humanity. And what the other thing it does is removes choice because you're not actually, you, you have removed your own agency. It's so funny that the thing that Cauldron does is, is take choice away from people, make choice for people. You were about to die. I saved you to turn you into this monster. I took that choice to die away from you. But Contessa's power takes choice away from her too, because she says, I want to do this here's your list of things to do. You don't get to choose which you do. If you want X, you have to do one, two, three, four, five. Um, you don't have a choice anymore. And I love, I love the detail of that and how that ties into everything we've been talking about with Cauldron as a whole. Yeah, it absolutely takes the choice away from her. And you can totally imagine, like if you always knew what the right choice was in any moment, 
then you would have no excuse not to just do that. Like if you you did anything other than that, then you're like, oh, I'm hurting myself for no reason. Yeah. Like imagine Um, like just getting up in the morning. It's like, can I snooze for 15 more minutes? No, no. No. (laughs) Well, how how do I get to work on time? Well, you, you wake up now and like all that, all that fun, like that, that day to day, um, like, tiny choices that we don't even think about are removed from you. You really are just like a slave to your own existence at that point. Yeah. And that's the the other part of her power is not only does she see the paths, but her body unerringly executes them. Right. um, If, if she kind of chooses to go with it. So, yeah. So, yeah. So she does become aware of a fog that creeps in when she considers certain questions. She tells her uncle how to save himself and then she flees she makes her way up a cliffside and finds a number of people confused, all from other worlds. A dark-skinned woman tries to talk to her, but Fortuna evades her. Yeah, it's uh, you. You kind of see now why Doctor Mother named herself that because she finds this little girl, and the first thing she does is approach her and try to talk to her and presumably help her because she just sees this little girl running around panicked. Yeah, I think it's really great that we get this aspect of this interlude where we see Doctor Mother be a really decent person and really try to do the right thing. And yeah, because w- without this, I mean, we saw her justify herself a bit in, in the previous, in the previous chapters we just read, but, uh, this, this makes us see like, yeah, she really started out and she was trying to do her best. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 And I think like that, that's, we've done that throughout this book, right? We, 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 we launch into these interludes and we learn the, the background of characters and we begin to understand them and therefore develop a certain amount of, of pity for them. And it doesn't erase the things they've done. The things they've done are still, still horrible, but you understand them a little more. We understood, we understood why Emma did what Emma did, even if we still don't like her as a person. And I think it's, that's the same thing here with Dr. Mother and, and Contessa. We, we get them now. Yeah. So here, here she arrives at the forest of the godlings flesh. So I, I just want to pause for a small moment and point out, like uh, I've said before, in fact, I said in my review of Worm that I wrote years ago, that one thing that I love about Worm is that it's science fiction. It's, it's really good science fiction. It's not, it's not just, you know, just a superhero story. It's, it's a well done science fiction tale that happens to construct the genre of superhero via science fiction means. Um, but this, this interlude, I love how, how close it is to fantasy because we have these, these images of like this, this little girl fleeing through the dark forest where there's, there's monsters, there's the dead bodies of monsters. She climbs up this cliff and goes into this, this fairy tale forest of body parts, sighing, rustling body parts. And she keeps using this term, the godling, which is such a, evocative kind of kind of fantasy-ish <laughs> term yeah. um, that, that no one in our main story would really use regularly but but she does because she's she's not from she, she's from this very uh it, it seems like she's from a very un- undeveloped world that that uh looks much more like the fantasy genre and i just find that very charming yeah no i completely agree with you it is it is otherworldly and and very different but still feels like it belongs in this book yeah so when she tries to kill the creature, though, uh, the fog descends again and, and she can't see the path to do it because there, there's a block in place. But the dark skinned woman helps her and they're able to communicate using Fortuna's power. And together they stab the creature at the base of the skull. Teamwork. <laughs> um, yep. So I guess ultimately we have to guess that the reason they were able to do this 
um, was that in in Fuckster's transformation into the the fake human she, she was going to be, there was a moment of weakness here or something that they were able to exploit. Um, so it's not something that could be just easily immediately replicated in Scion. But but I, I do like the idea that it seems like what they did is is cut off the the this the draw to the well um that that there's this well of this entity and by stabbing it where they did they almost severed the line between the thing that was being created and the source of that power and that seems like something hey we could maybe replicate that in scion like if if there's a well there's got to be a a a bucket with a string that's going down to it and if we if we cut that out maybe that's game over so again we're getting a little clues i think throughout this yeah yeah i think i think that's interesting yeah i mean it's it's i like how it's not clearly said like oh this is exactly the kind of this is exactly what the entity did wrong but i mean we definitely saw scion had no apparent point of vulnerability like this right uh, because he he didn't make a mistake in crash land basically and and leave leave his well open to access from humans which is what which is what the thinker did yeah way to go fuckster yeah so later, Fortuna and the Doctor discuss approaches for combating the other entity, which uh, which Fortuna knows is still out there somewhere from, from the vision. Yeah, and the the thing that I wanted to pull out this section that really jumped out at me uh, to to continue our our talk about the blessing and the curse that is Contessa's power um, is this line where she says the indecision gripped her again when she wasn't acting in the scope of her power. It was all the more difficult to act. And that, I think, is just a natural drawback of what this power creates. If everything you want to do, you know the best way to do it, suddenly when that is removed from you, like, you're so not used to having to make those choices without knowing the consequences, suddenly you can't act. And that's that's a real big drawback that, like, the, the idea that, like, you, you, you freeze because suddenly you don't know. Like, you have to, for a second, be just a normal human again and... And it, it means you kind of slowly become completely reliant on your power or other people. Yeah, right. I, I've I've had this this thought about thinker powers before. Like we've we've seen inside Accord's head, we've seen inside Tattletail's head, where their their whole psychology becomes wrapped up in their in their thinker power because it's so ridiculously strong that it just takes over the function of a large amount of what would normally be your own human cognition. Yeah. 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 So they they didn't try they try out a formula that they've derived from the flesh of the garden on a man named Lamar and he dies horribly. <laughs> well, uh, that didn't work. Sorry, sorry, Lamar. Yeah, our bad. Uh, yeah, and she says, "Don't don't call me by the name my parents gave me." The doctor took a moment to reply. Another name. Contessa nodded. So this is perfect. Um. Like, I, like this, it, it comes at a time where she's literally transforming herself because she doesn't want to be that other person because she's turning into this other person, a person that can do this thing, a person that can casually kill Lamar and just move on with their lives. And I, I just love structurally how it's executed, though. Like, it would be very easy to just say, like, call me Contessa, but just like another name we don't even see her answer it just we we see that shift to that new identity just through through the nod like it's just it's just so so simple and yet elegant that we make this transition yeah i also like that we find out lamar's name 
Um, not because, you know, it matters and we never hear about Lamar again. Um, it's, it's because at this point, Contessa actually bothered knowing the names of the people who she was doing this to. Right. This is the first patient. She finds out the name. Maybe she has some hope for this. Doesn't work. The guy dies horribly. And then in the next batch, um, there there's no names <laughs> yeah it's the it's the blonde haired kid the one yeah. that looked like the monster the little boy the girl yeah. you're absolutely right the, that that's we, that is a a big shift you're right yeah so later they see on tv that the golden man has arrived and contessa knows of course who this is she admits that it's easier dealing with the blind spots in her power when somebody else takes point and this is how the doctor comes to be the leader i think and between the two of them they decide to build an army yeah and then and that's the, that's the cauldron reveal that they didn't really know what they were doing <laughs> yep. like they're just they're just trying things they don't know like they don't know any more than anyone else they're just trying things and maybe they'll work and maybe they won't and like it's a, like you hear someone has a path to victory and you're like oh well shit but but because of the block because that she can't see or work around scion that that their plan has never been the 3000 step process to save the world. It's just been the 3000 step process to, uh, maybe <laughs> have success yeah. to, to have these resources at hand. Right. And they, these resources may or may not be enough to save the world. Yep. It reminds me a bit of Sion, you know, we're not really, we basically, you know, presumably asking for a path to find his, his partner and, finding his partner dead yep um it's it's like yeah you malformed your your wish and the capricious genie of your future site gave you not quite what you asked for damn monkey's paw yeah no so they prepare another batch of 10 vials and this time six survive the process um we have uh the blonde man who can invent which uh I, I don't care that you don't look at tag scott i'm gonna say that this is this is hero yeah which is, I, I, I think cool i guessed that because i <laughs> They said he was one of the earliest ones, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And Doormaker 2 is also in this uh, this batch. Yeah. And we have the blonde man saying, ironic because he is hero, say, you're heroes as far as I'm concerned. And then the immediate next thing after like a, 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 a break is monsters. The word was howled, <laughs> reverberating through the building. And we, here we have this heroes monsters theme thing going on again. Yeah, that juxtaposition though is just perfect. And like you said, there's a scene break between it, so we get to see this this little square between a point, a high point in Cauldron's uh, existence where they just had success for the first time, and someone calls them a hero, and then bam, we're right back to the fall of Cauldron, heroes to monsters. Yep. So Contessa, this is of course roughly present day or it's showing how things got to where they are Contessa flees hemmed in by the perception blocking fog yeah damn damn you man tell him yep uh we she runs and she thinks about how everything has gone wrong yeah and and i i like this because it's easy to read this fog as as just fog like it's just it's just a, a literal reflection of Mantellum's power blocking effect. But I think if you if you look at this more metaphorically, you see that Cauldron's in a place now where for the first time in in a long time, they're lost. They don't know what to do next. So it's the the, the fog that, that is being caused by Mantellum here represents Contessa's literal 
sense of of loss right now and she she doesn't know what to do she's lost for the first time she she just like everyone we were talking about doesn't have a role anymore she doesn't know what her purpose is she doesn't know what to do anymore and all their plans are falling apart and then she's literally being chased by the fog of uncertainty and i think that's very very wonderfully poetic while still working in just the narrative function yeah yeah that's beautiful yeah, I, I like, yeah, you've kind of drawn my attention to the fact that, like, she's running almost as if, like, if the fog catches her, she's dead. But all the fog is, is she can't use her power, which, right. yeah, she's she's way, way, way weaker without her power. Um, but she's so desperate to avoid it. I mean, I'm not saying she's wrong to be desperate to avoid it. I'm just saying, um, yeah, it's it's visceral yeah. at this point. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she's, she's reflecting on everything that uh, Cauldron has lost, and she thinks... They had five major tools left to deploy. Three armies, two of which were roughly the same size as any of the defending forces. Kansu, who was the stalling measure, and a Hail Mary in the form of the three vials with the special element inside. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> hey, those three vials, they're not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's not a great uh, Hail Mary. Yeah. So she decides to call the number man. Weld corners her, and she fights him off while talking to number man. She tells him how to reach the doctor, and he points out to her the existence of his conveniently foreshadowed portal window. That was like a million arcs ago, Wildbo. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. How did she but set that up of, so long ago? I, I know. It's the kind of detail that you wouldn't forget, though. Like, yeah. Just this little little character detail from, from Number Man that he right. had this window. I also, I also like to imagine that as she's fighting Weld, she's just like has a perfectly level voice talking to Number Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she evades Weld and the teleporter irregular and gets through the window into an alien Earth. Once through the doorway, her power seems to kick in again. The cape shoots magma down at her, and she uses a stick to sell her own death. After the capes leave, the doorway closes behind her, and she's stuck there for about an hour until the doorway opens again, presumably after Taylor and crew have rescued and healed Doormaker. She uses her power to check on the state of things and finds that door- the, the doctor is dead, the vials are gone, and then she runs into a group of quote-unquote protectorate capes, which her power tells her is actually Teacher and his minions. Yeah, and I, I really like this moment with Teacher. I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about with her before. But particularly I like when she realizes that the Doctor is dead, she says, odd that she couldn't bring herself to feel bad about it. What is it? Was it because she spent so long trying to achieve something and she failed? Or was it because she'd lost respect for the Doctor, like she'd lost respect for herself? And that, I think ties into that idea that that they've lost humanity in, in doing what they've done. They've stripped themselves of their humanity and now she doesn't feel much of anything anymore, except she's lost and, and needs purpose. And here's yeah. teacher to give her one. Yeah. They've both been tools of Contessa's power this whole time. Yeah. And, and sadly she doesn't take the lesson to say, Hey, maybe I should, try not to rely on this and, and think for myself. She just says, okay, all right, whatever uh, you're in charge now. Right. Um, and the, yeah, so he asks for her help and, and she says, uh, okay, what are we, what are we doing? And he says, uh, saving us from ourselves. He said, case in point, we've got a crisis that involves one little lady. I think you're familiar with. He held up his phone. A picture was displayed. It took her a moment to recognize the person in the picture and not because it was an unfamiliar face. Weaver, she asked. <laughs> oh, what a way to end this arc! <laughs> um, like you said, there's there's a, a, a something with Contessa's 
character here, she's so used to being the number two in an organization that taking point on something is not something she can handle. So the first time someone comes up to her and offers her a slot as number two in their organization, she jumps on it. She's like, yep, uh, I needed meaning, I needed purpose, and you offered it for me, so boom, I'm going to do it. Um, which a person that she probably knows is extremely untrustworthy and manipulative and like teacher is not a good person and is not someone that you want to be around for any period of time, but needs, needs to have that purpose. So she does it. Um, yeah. You know, you, you reminded me, we don't know how old Contessa was, uh, when she got her power, but it must've been pretty young. must've been, yeah. you know, pretty, pretty young. So I think she probably has that breadth and depth thing going on where, where her power has sort of dominated her actually. And that's, that's why she's so, she's so able to just submit to whatever the answer appears to be in her environment. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the the second thing I want to talk about before we wrap up here is the way the picture of Weaver is described. (laughs) So like assume at this point, we have to assume that we've jumped into the future a little bit here because we know there was an hour that went by. We know that, that uh, Contessa got out after the doorway opened back up. Um, and I, there's this idea that like it took her a moment to recognize the person in the picture and not because it was an unfamiliar face. So what does Taylor have to look like now in this picture for that, for that to be that? And it's just like, we're really setting the stage for what the hell is going to happen to this girl in the next arc. And it's so great. I, I can't wait. It's like I said, it's tragic. Um, it's heartbreaking, but it's very exciting as well. Yes. I, I also can't wait. And, and yes, it is tragic and heartbreaking and exciting. Um, yeah. So that, that wraps up arc 29, arc 29, then I'm leaving only, well, leaving only arc 30 and, and the epilogue. Um, yeah, but like epilogues are epilogues. There's one more arc and then there's an epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the epilogue is still like five or six chapters right yeah but i mean it's like the story ends that's like epilogue is after a story so the story is going to end the next week and then we will see what happens after that yeah all right uh i think there's there's some good name game material um i i've wanted to talk about satirical actually ever since he was introduced because um i mean he he has kind of this sadder you know uh, goat man theme but it's it's really like satirical as in satire as in he makes copies and then the copies look like other people as in a satire of the other people. So always yeah, was one of those, cute. one of those double meanings. Yeah. Um, Fortuna got, got <laughs> basically, basically luck, lucky. Yeah. Um, and, and she is kind of the, not that Cauldron, you know, actually won, but she did, she did get the power of, uh, being really lucky and being able to win basically. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Mother, we, we kind of have hit on a few times, I think, but I don't think we've ever really done a name game. Where we talk about the fact that it's it usually shortened to the, the doctor or something like that um, because she is a doctor and, and, and so forth. But she's also has this this matronly side where she's trying to care for she's sort of caring for Contessa. She's also sort of trying to be the one who cares for the whole whole world. But she does this at the cost of her humanity, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And we already talked about all the all the capes in the in the future sites. So I don't think we need to talk about that again. No, that was yeah. fun. That was good. Yeah. All right. So yeah, let's let's talk about those uh, speculations, Scott. All right. Um, let's let's close up some of the old ones. We got quite a few this time. Um, I said that Taylor had already had her second trigger event um, 
almost immediately after the first, possibly while still locked in the locker. Um, we can call that correct. Um, number yeah. man seems yeah. to know what he's talking about. Uh, I don't, I don't know if the story specifically confirms that, but I think that's the, the most confirmation we're going to get. Yeah, I think that's true. I also said that Dr. Mother discovered the corpse of the warrior's counterpart, Fuckster, um, and crafted the vials based on its shards. That's kind of how it happened. I mean, discovered the corpse. She, she made the corpse. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But she found she she found the counterpart. It wasn't dead yeah. yet. Yes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's half credit. <laughs> no, I, I I mean I think yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, that counts. And then I said Contessa. I I thought that Contessa was the third entity um, that we saw bumping into into Fuxter, um, which is is wrong now. But the shard she had is that a shard from the third entity, or is that her own? Is that Fuckster's own future seeing shard that I wasn't quite clear on that. I always, I always forget the, the detail of what's going on here. Um, I think that it may be, uh, the foreign, sh- uh, the, the, the third entity shard. Yeah. And I think when Sion sees the number man and Contessa, um, he kind of remarks on her shard as being weird in, in some way. And oh, the yeah, details are, yeah. are escaping me now. No, yeah, I, that's, yeah, I think that's that. So, so I was, I was not, right in that but it's close it's close yeah um yeah 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 i mean it's it's related yeah yeah and then my final one is uh it was scion scion was the he he's gonna blow up cauldron space uh that was correct because that was the the gimme speculation i just yeah i just i just did that one to give me a win in the win column all right so that's the old ones and you know what guys like i was thinking i was thinking about this for a long time and we're here at the end now we're on the last arc and i think for once i really i really don't i don't want to speculate specifically i don't want to make specific guesses anymore i think i think i've made it pretty clear throughout the last few arcs um what i think is going to happen at the end of this um and i i think i believe some of the specific speculations i made tie into pretty much literally what i'm I'm, I think it's going to happen. So you can look at those and tell, but I think in this final, this final arc, I think I just want to kind of sit back and enjoy it unfold in front of me. And we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk all about it in detail, but I, I just don't, I don't want to, I don't want to make any specific speculations. I just want to enjoy it as it comes to me. So this episode and this episode only, I'm not going to make anything. I'm not going to do it. So I, I know some of you probably be upset. You'll want to know, what I thought was going to happen, but I, I don't know, Matt, I think I've made that pretty, pretty clear what I think is going down. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I don't, I don't blame you at all because if there's a point in the story when you want to just organically experience the story, it would be right as you're sliding into the, the climactic right. uh, ending of everything. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, you don't, nobody thinks nobody gets to that point in a book they're really enjoying and like closes the book and thinks, all right, let me, let me analyze this and think what's going to happen. <laughs> what you do, what you do is you say, all right, I can't wait to see what happens next. And you turn the page, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't blame me at all. Yeah. So that will wrap up our coverage of arc 29 venom. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Um, my ARC 30 
live read will beginning will be begin this Thursday the seventh. Yeah, the seventh. Um, I usually start at noon. I think this is kind of a long arc. So in order to make sure I can finish it all in one day and not have to do that thing where I halfway through one of the chapters have to just be like, sorry, guys, I got to go. I think I'm going to start that a little early on Thursday. So I think I'm going to start that 10 o'clock central time uh, just to just to get a jump on it so I can make sure I finish it on Thursday. Uh, so if if you haven't followed along on Twitter yet and I, I have a great time with that, I love to see y'all's reactions to my reaction. So it's it's never a better time than right now to follow us on Twitter and see and see me read that final arc. Oh, yes, I, I definitely enjoy following those. That's uh, yeah. And and God, I, I, will, I will die if you stop reading that. Arc halfway <laughs> well, that's through. why yeah. I'm giving myself a whole two extra yes. hours there, Matt. So. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> So, yeah, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, uh, it would be really shocking that you're listening to this episode. But we strongly (laughs) recommend that you go ahead and subscribe and never miss another episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. Yeah, and as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. Over on the other podcasting feed this week, Michael and I got together to talk about Godless, the newest show from Netflix, a... uh, a a reimagining of the western um and we compared that back to some classic westerns in shane and the searchers and it was a pretty good episode so uh, check it out and check out godless on netflix i, I love that show so uh it's, it's awesome check that out and all the other podcasts we do yeah it's a very very interesting episode um and yeah if you like any of our other shows and want to support them we have a patreon page patreon.com slash data planet films Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new Planeteers, Sick Martin, Raceman, Misha, and Jake at the $1 level, and Captain's Planet uh, Z-Man, uh, who upgraded to the $10 level. I, I will remind everyone that, that it only takes a dollar to get access to the uh, the, the Discord, which is a, a hot place. We really, really like uh the conversations going on in there yeah absolutely and speaking of, of patreon in general uh don't forget to stop by wildo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible and as always if you can't afford to pledge right now that's okay you can still help us out by like harshly flinging chunks of people's dead loved ones at them screaming uh listen to we've got worm uh or you could just man i wrote that and then it's kind of mean <laughs> when you read it out loud uh, it's kind of like <laughs> Taken out Ooh. of context, that's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Oof. Uh, or you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, this, leaks, this week's spotlight review comes from Eonol, who gives us five stars and says, came across We've Got Worm via a web search that I made in hopes of discovering a podcast dedicated to my favorite story. I couldn't be more pleased by the approach. It's everything I had hoped for. Matt and Scott are insightful, entertaining, and as thorough as can be reasonably expected. Even after reading Worm three times, experiencing Taylor's tale vicariously through Scott's first read is always a pleasure. Keep it up, guys, and looking forward to We've Got Ward. Thanks so much. Um, and Matt, look, search engine optimization, it works. It works. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I, I always say, you know, be the podcast you want to see in the world. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but seriously, thank you so much for those kind words. And thank you, everyone else. Um, we got a, a big influx of, of reviews coming in. So uh, we're a little behind. I think we're going to have to start doubling up on them because we're, we're running out of episodes in this podcast, Matt. But um, yeah, so we'll be reading a bunch next week, probably. Um, but, but keep them coming. Thank you so much. It really does help us. It means the world to us that you guys are liking this and, and I love, I love getting to read what you guys think. It's great. Yeah, definitely. 
All right, that's that's it for us this week. Next week, we'll be covering Arc 30 spec, the final arc, excluding the epilogue. Scott, what's going to happen with this one? Well, Matt, there's going to be specs of Scion all over the place. Um, <laughs> I Yeah, like I said, I, I don't want to really speculate too much, but uh, you know what it's going to be, Matt? It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a super long episode of this podcast. It's probably going to be our longest episode. We are not going to stop talking or short shrift anything for the sake of time um it's gonna be it's gonna be great i can't wait yeah yeah and we'll we'll see next week on another exciting episode of we've got worms